Thank you. Deep pleasure to, to have you here. Uh, I've known you for some time, and I must say, I think there are few, if any, that have a deeper understanding of deep learning than you do. I'm nodding, but because I'm humbled, sorry, thank you. But then if you look at your LinkedIn page, you say, I have like a comfortable understanding of deep learning or something. Yeah. And then you're like a multi-year contributor to TensorFlow. TensorFlow, I think you have a world record still in audio, what was it, offset uh, detection? Or polyphonic pitch detection, maybe, yeah. but it depends a little on how you evaluate it, which mm. is my current passion. How do we evaluate ML algorithms at all? Mm. So it depends, mm. always. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, thank you. So it's kind of a weird kind of combination that, for one, you're a very humble person, but then having yeah. spoken to you a lot in the past, you're not always humble. So no, I'm pr only pretending to be humble. <laughs> That's because you learned that you're usually wrong, and arrogance is very natural to me. So mm. I assume I'm right, and then I, when I measure, oh, wait, I'm usually wrong, <laughs> trying to pattern match that behavior. Well, as a very techie person, I'm very much looking forward, forward to this discussion and, and actually being able to speak about technical things in depth yes. at some point. So that will be funny, but uh, Henrik here, will, uh, prom he has promised to, to stop us if we go too deep into some kind of technical discussion. Yeah, right. but I, I kind of don't want to stop you, but I want to explore with these techie minds also from, you know, traditional enterprise challenges. We have yeah. this huge landscape mm. and we do super techie stuff over here in our platform, but then I, then I still have my finance and accounting systems. I yep. still have this. Mm. So I, I'm really looking forward to explore how I'm in, in, in quotation marks, a modern startup type company how does their topology look like? Mm. So in this way, I, I will, I guess I will dumb it down to normal ERP questions as well. <laughs> <laughs> cool. But let's get started a bit quickly. And, and perhaps Carl, you can start by, you know, how would you describe yourself? Who, who is Carl to me? Mm. Um, yeah. So uh, currently I'm working as a machine learning engineer, which implies that I'm a little bit worse at statistics than a data scientist, but I'm a little bit better at coding than they are. But I'm also worse at coding than a software developer. Uh, so Another I'm a humble comment. <laughs> no, I was saying like uh, my my interest has been a lot of music applied machine learning to music, uh, but a, a primary interest beyond that is how do we actually get machine learning into uh, normal companies? It's quite mm -hmm. hard. It doesn't really happen naturally, and I think it's partially because it's very new to make it into industry. So you need to have a very broad knowledge, mm -hmm. uh, everything from well, what a Poisson distribution is, honestly, but knowing about it and also knowing about uh, dependency injection, mm -hmm. and then also knowing about how to even structure a team or whatever using Perhaps GitHub you can Flow. can speak a bit about uh, object orientation as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but all of these things, right? So my, my, my background is programming and computer yeah. science and web developer first. And then I went um, very hard into music because that's what I grew up with doing and listening to, of course, but also doing it a lot. And I, and I think... Even playing instruments? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it sounds... Which ones? I, I, uh, primarily uh, electric guitar. Hmm. But you know, he actually has a number of songs on Spotify as well with a rather high number of uh, listens. So uh, uh, it's also another... Can you bring that up, hum. Goran, at some point oh, yeah. during, the, during the day? <laughs> we need to listen but, to it. But um, in that, so um, music technology is a very good mix, right? If you're interested in coding and you're interested in playing music, what's a good... Yeah, the uh, obvious mix then is how do we record music in computers? How does that work? And from being very young, I was always, always interested in like MIDI samplers, whatever it is. What is MIDI? Who chose MIDI? What is that? Mm. And then going deeper into that, and, and now I feel like I'm kind of beginning uh, a career where I kind of roughly understand the whole picture of it, that there's actually people behind all of these protocols and 
specifications and the names of them, those people start to pop up in papers I read about machine learning. And it's a quite small world in a nice way when you finally see like, hmm, I could write C code that probably records audio too and make it into a nice thing and then apply this LSTM on that or whatever and make a very exciting new sampler or synthesizer or whatever. Super cool. Yeah. When you say no, 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 that's not it. That's uh, another artist name. But yeah, sorry. Well, but when you say uh, bringing machine learning into a company, what, mm. what's your definition? Is it putting it in production as yeah. part of services? No, uh, yeah, so services could be. Oh, do you mean consultancy services? Because I'm thinking services. No, no, no. I'm, 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 I'm talking hardcore. I, I have, I have some sort of uh, digital service, mm -hmm. and it's uh, machine learning driven. Yeah. That's roughly what I uh, I mean. So getting it into production, uh, so actually having it in the hands of users, and that little step from working notebook to having it in the hands of users is huge. Yeah, it's huge. It's way bigger than making it work. So yeah, it's, and, it's and, and the whole discussion now: do we do machine learning that ends up some sort of as an insight that then people mm. who you know analog synthesize the actions and decisions around or do we actually put it all the way down into all the way for me i guess so yeah. my goal would be to make it actually i don't want to say automated but the decision making could be scaled by machine yeah. learning suggestions maybe. and and then production f is also to do one data pipeline in production yep. to, towards having hundreds you know vertical scaling end-to-end -end data pipeline in, in production versus mm. also vertically having hundreds of algorithms running small services everywhere. And you need to start thinking about feature stores, yeah. you know. Yeah, so all of those feature stories are very interesting buzzword. I like it. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm reading about a lot about it because I have those problems daily. Uh, and, and I guess this means horizontally, not vertically. Exactly. Right? So putting yeah. one product, you know, and I think this is the story. We do machine learning. Mm. Where does it end up? Well, yes. actually, I'm, I'm showing it in Power BI yeah, to someone to visualize what I, my yeah. insight. But that's also that's a big part of it. Like when you say you work with machine learning, people don't know if you work with generating business insights, preferably actionable insights, uh, or if you're working with APIs and setting up nice. I'm, I'm from deep learning, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, my history isn't working with uh, classification so much. It's more a multi-dimensional output. Mm -hmm. So removing blur from images or whatever uh, and uh, from your audio, right? So removing certain instruments from a mix or something. But speaking about Power BI and perhaps analytics versus yeah. AI or something, do you have like, what's your view of the difference between the two or, or are they basically the same? Uh, tools Toolbox is going to be more similar as time goes on mm -hmm. uh, since we're going to make the tools less hard to understand and hopefully and easier to use. And machine learning is a very useful tool for analytics and uh, generating insights. Um, so I think it's going to be roughly the same stack for the tech people, um, but obviously then the soft skills are very different. So if you work as a machine learning engineer, as I do, I, I never actually practice explaining what I do to people. If I work as a data scientist, I, I would say I'm mostly working on explaining stuff to people. And I, I think this has been one of the conversations we had also with, we had Mikkel Klingwall as a data scientist, mm. data scientist yep. from, uh, from, uh, from um, Vattenfall. And he basically shares your view and basically thinks that we, we, have, we have different needs and purposes as a data scientist explaining and really make sure we have the context versus actually making something work as an engineer. Yes. So my mental model is that I'm a bridge between software developers. Those, those are my audience, I would say. So uh, they exist. They're going to get a new form of programming on their hands, whether they want it or not, because it's useful, it's going to work, it's working already. Big companies are already doing it. If you are a software developer, you're going to have to learn machine learning 
um, in the next five years. Otherwise, you're kind of a dinosaur, I guess. This we need to d- dig deep into <laughs> what you mean by that. Yeah, um, but that's a strong feeling I have. And and then uh, so bridging the gap between software developers and data scientists, rather maybe data analysts, uh, BI people, mm-hmm. uh, being that bridge, I would say that's where a machine learning engineer kind of fits in. Where it's like, I'm, I'm not the strongest in the room at anything, but I, I can translate between these two different audiences. And that's been a, um, a valuable thing, I think, that I do sometimes in organizations. I think we, we even had the, this uh, eureka moment where we basically said, you know what, one of the big problems right now is that we are not making a distinction between data scientist role of, you know, explainable insights, uh, validity, reliability, the whole statistical storyline mm. versus engineering stuff as a new coding paradigm. But that's, isn't that like five years ago, maybe 10, data scientists actually did mean full stack, but it's shifted. So, yes. so the term has, the data scientist today is slightly different from data scientist 10 years ago. I think, I think like it's it used a to be more of an engineering curve here yeah. of understanding. The and then everyone who was interested in, in backend, they went like, no, I'm not a data scientist because those people are stupid. And then, <laughs> and they're like, I'm going to rebrand myself. So now I'm a machine learning engineer. And that's uh, that happened naturally and organically, and now it's just a new phrase. I wouldn't be surprised if what I'm working with is going to be called something else in five years. When every software developer is applying Keras in their work in a normal way, uh, so why would basically it, AI will become so ubiquitous or yeah, it's going to be a natural anything. part of many types of compilers, probably. Like yeah, you can optimize some parts of your floats. Yeah, all right, mm. click. But I think that has been also the conversation going on. I think really catching on the last one or two years that the distinction just because you can do something in a notebook, yep. you know, it's not the same as putting, you know, robust software in place. Yeah. There's quite a bit more to that discipline. Yes. Uh, and that's also a frustration, right? So I come from computer science as a background, which means I've been taught a lot about thinking about complexity. Mm what that means. Complexity is a very broad term. From a software? No, not every, everything really. So operational complexity, okay. I, I assume like having many people together, why are we moving slow? Oh, it's easy to do it yourself. It's hard to do it with many people, but there's a benefit there too, of course. But thinking about complexity in systems is a very big part of computer science, theoretical computer science. Mm-hmm. And then coming from, uh, or meeting data scientists, uh, can be frustrating because they are sometimes a very naive bunch. Exactly. From, like, from the just take my notebook, it's done. Yeah. You, yeah. <laughs> yes, but my maintenance, we have to understand it half a year later. Can we? Kinda, those things are hard. But can you imagine from a recruitment point of view from a uh, traditional company, which is immature completely to the whole field, yep. what a minefield this is to recruit yeah, yeah, for? Yeah. So when I started at Epidemic Sound, and I didn't do an introduction, so who knows, no, but no. I'm working at the uh, record label, you could say, or a royalty-free music catalog. Epidemic uh, sound, I think. Yeah, we should. We should. We should do it. continue now, and then we and then we frame right. epidemic sound. But so for um, when I came in there as a full-time employee, uh, aligning job titles was mm. a big challenge. Like getting it well understood by the entire organization, down to the tech recruiters, what these titles mean. Roughly, in average, it's a huge HR problem in all companies, yeah. right? Yeah, but it's like when you look from their side of it, it's like, yeah, how would they know that CNN doesn't stand for the network? It stands for the network. Like obviously, it's hard. It's so many acronyms, very weird, very narrow things. And like from a layman's perspective, you all work with data. You all talk yeah. about AI. I don't know, but they are very specific. So well, we haven't even mentioned data engineers, right? No, but, but that's also a very big part of it. And no. they're also distinctly different in my mind. So data ops is not a machine learning ops? Um, both. 
it's different, I think. But They're it's different. very, but yeah. it's like, and, and it's and it's in my mind, it's clearly different. But coming outside as a CTO or something, looking at it, how would you even navigate all of these weird data disciplines? Yeah, and and then, and then you put one simple dimension of efficiency. What's the balance between yeah. data ops, machine learning ops, data scientists? Mm. You know, even here, so you can understand. I think this is one of the main key challenges. Yeah, and I think the gamble I'm doing at Epidemic Sound is that I. I I, I propose that we should have very smart, uh, more smart than we think, very full stack people initially. If you want to make this a normal part of the organization that have predictions and pipelines that predict stuff, then we will initially need a few super, super strong in all of these disciplines, people. And that's super hard to find. So it's a, it has a cost. You can't scale in that way. But I think when you start, you need that to get anywhere. It's because it's so easy to accidentally have three smart people doing notebooks and it never ends up anywhere. No. But it's also very easy to have people just doing data pipelines and never realizing that you could do shortcuts, like the math shortcuts or like, oh, mm-hmm. this is actually just this. Oh, easy. So you need a... So you need a person that can do everything. Kind of. So that's a data scientist, I guess. So, <laughs> so this whole idea of how, how super narrow you are versus full stack mm. has a lot to do with the where you are in your growth as a company or, or, yes. as, or, or it doesn't even have to be company maybe, also in your journey of data and AI. Because yes. if, if you are starting out and you only have five guys to recruit in your, you know, in your budget, kind of goes in this full stack direction. Mm-hmm. And finding good people is hard because if you think about deep learning, it hasn't been around for that long. So no one has really battle tested it. Like what happens when the prediction server goes down? How do we handle that? Do we, maybe that's normal software development. Maybe it's different. Who knows? I mean, having deep learning at, at a me- medium scale at a medium big company mm. who has done that yet? Not many. Uh, small companies, sure, they have an app, it does stuff, it predicts stuff, it's a one-off, it's working, and then big companies, the big five, I guess, uh, they have some stuff in production, obviously, but uh, for us in between, um, there's many weird unknowns, or like operational unknowns, like which roles do you need, to what degree. Uh, so what I'm working on a lot organically at work now is to make data engineers more interested in predictions, make software developers also more interested in predictions, but also maybe operations. And then make data scientists more interested in uh, continuous integration, mm-hmm. which I think is the easiest way of getting them to unit test stuff. Mm. Wow. That was a lot of... But like bridging those disciplines. But what you said right now to me was a lot of core things that, that we are talking about, but you, you brought it all the way down here. So could we dissect a little bit what you said now on a more and less techy dimension because <laughs> what you said right now was, I think, super important I mean, stuff. I assume like outside of this little bubble of tech where I am, Deep, deep, deep in tech, there are uh, uh, product organizations and stakeholders, uh, marketing or whatever, yes. CRMs and all of those. And that's the actual end user, I guess, usually. Uh, and uh, it, in The customer or the internal user. Yeah, yeah, both. So many machine learning projects will probably have internal uh, stakeholders and mm-hmm. maybe end users as well, mm-hmm. um, making nice newsletter segmentation, like which uh, members should have as frequent mailing and whatever, uh, churn prediction, all of this. Mm. Um, a lot of the uh, recipient of your predictions will be in-house. Yes. Um, although like formally, I think for the team I'm in now, we have uh, the, our actual end user, uh, the storyteller, the YouTubers that mm-hmm. Epidemic Sound sells to, that's uh, our intended user. But yes. on the way there, it's going to be, mm, I need to get the, the CPO to roughly understand uh, which what supervised learning is, roughly. Like, 
Perhaps it's a clear time to to start to speak about epidemic sound a bit. We mentioned <laughs> it a number of times. Yes. And I, I guess a lot of people don't so even what know is what epidemic they sound? do. Uh, yeah, so that's been a big, big. It's a strange thing, actually. I think okay, so it's a record label in some to some extent. They they have music musicians making songs, and they put them up on a website. So that's a normal record label. But the end user here isn't necessarily uh, you and me that's going to listen to this song. It could be, and that's fine, but it's primarily... I'm actually using Epidemic Sound at home in the same way as Spotify. Oh, yeah, but so, so many, many people do, right? And, and then also many of the Epidemic Sound songs actually are published to Spotify, and they are yes. quite popular. So, so to some degree, it's a normal record label, but the primary and the background, the primary uh, revenue stream and then the history of the company has been production music. So that would be someone cutting together video, and they need sound effects, and they need some backing music some background music that sounds uh, jazzy or something. So that's the history of the company. They started doing uh, a lot of production music uh, and now it's more original music. So actually artists with their own sounds and their own identities, uh, which are still used in YouTube videos a lot. Uh, but it's, so it's a many, many different revenue streams at the same time. And that's a little confusing to me when I started. And on top of this, of course, there's something called in-store music where you have, uh, when you go into Capball or whatever, uh, Ikea, I guess, uh, they have music on. And they have to pay royalties somehow. And so either they pay royalties to the normal collecting societies, which is Steam in Sweden, uh, or they pay a flat fee each month to Epidemic Sound. So they don't have to really think about it. And then they get a little uh, kind of a Raspberry Pi. Yeah. And this piece music. is sort of uh, your com- one competitor to you here is Soundtrack of our brand, you know. Soundtrack, soundtrack your brand, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Write this piece. That is a Spotify. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah, compared to, yeah, there's also a lot of uh, organic kind of intermingling between people. So like we had people leaving to Soundtrack your brand this month and, and, <laughs> and vice versa. I think we hired people from there too. Yeah. So it, in terms of people, it's not a competition, but I guess in money it could be. But uh, could you explain to someone who hasn't been inside the Epidemic Sound platform, mm. how does it differ? Because I think it's quite different in the way you consume or search what you, mm-hmm. what the, what the actual function is from to from from others you know music streaming services mm-hmm. like Spotify. But that's, that, so that's that's the most subtle subtle thing to talk about. Really, it's like isn't it? This is just Spotify, right? So why not just use Spotify? Oh, it's ju- this is a big difference. That, yeah, the there point. is there is, but it's like it's very subtle, and it's like for production music. Uh, if, there are disciplines here where there's like you can be a music supervisor at a Hollywood movie production, and then your job. Is to you're in charge of like which songs are we using when and where and how do we pay for that I guess and, and they have a different mindset than I would have when I listen to Spotify. I listen to songs that I like and I want to search for songs I like, but here we want to find songs that have a preserved same feeling of the scene, the video scene exactly. after you replaced the music. So that's uh, often it's probably very similar, but sometimes it's not. So you could probably go a little. Um, further away from timbre or how it uh, the, um, the emotion of the song is more important i guess for epidemic sound maybe than the the actual singer's timbre or how it's how he sounds yeah, but even the it's whole idea to, that you're searching on moods or you, you, yeah. you're searching you're searching a music catalog from a f- completely different angle but spotify also has mood-based listening and it's very popular so it's like when you go when you start spotify today they you click on a easy slow piano and uh, and many people do click on that and they love it. So how is that different? But it's it's uh, there's gonna be video scenes that make this music work slightly differently. I'm not so sure that we can't use models from Spotify at Epidemic Sound and be very happy. Yeah. I think we have a natural overlap as yeah. well. And then you have a catalog of sound effects. 
Yeah, yeah, that, that's different, of course, right? So there's other audio beyond music, uh, yeah. but Epidemic Sound's uh, primary focus has been the music. Uh, but sound effects are also part of it. And, and, that's and, and then one last very cool feature to, 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 to cut down the different stems of a song. That's pretty cool. Oops. How does that work, by the way? Uh, it's uh, manually. <laughs> so every music producer, when they sell their track yes. to the catalog, they have to, to bounce out stems. And what is stems? Stems is so a few instruments solo. Uh, of the track, so, so you, you can literally drums only can, or vocals. You only. can you can listen to the sound and take away the drums. Yes, and that's a very nice supervised target for uh, deep learning. So mm, <laughs> here we have something to work on. Yes, uh, definitely single source separation, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, single channel. Yeah, yeah, single channel source. Or separation. actually, in this case, it's stereo recording, so we could maybe use stereo imaging also. But mm. I don't know. I'm allowed to, to dig more into the, the deep learning part of that and yes, how really <laughs> Let's to, do. to do that. But, but I think but everybody gets the point with epidemic sound. I, I hopefully it's made, to me, it was surprising that you could make so much money on it. But then when you look around on YouTube, which is one of the markets where they have users, right? So the storytellers on YouTube, they use music. They buy music from somewhere, sometimes epidemic sound. Um, those channels, like I have a little fishing channel in Spain and I have as many subscribers as there are citizens in Sweden. So like mm. the scale of it, it's amazing. It's, yeah, it's amazing. It's also strange. It's like, oh, yes, it actually goes around. You can make a lot of money. There's a lot of revenue in just having like uh, these very small but still huge channels. There's billions of people in the world. Mm-hmm. And that surprised me when I started. Uh, the number of employees, for example. Like, how does this, how can, how big is this business? Very big. Mm. But also, I mean, to, to be f- fair about the better mix sound i mean it is one of the premier like s- music providers for most youtube videos or yeah in terms of quality high quality is mm. the is the gamble to have high quality sounding music so in short if you listen to some kind of uh, uh, youtube video and hear the music in the background it's probably from a better mm, better yeah, sound. That, so that happens to me every day now when i'm watching youtube videos for some reason i'm watching bicycle videos whatever <laughs> mountain biking or what type no, of I mean, like the global cycling network or whatever that yeah, channel. yeah, yeah. yeah but so, so every description of every video it's always like music from epidemic sound mm. and and i i noticed that when i like remembered like oh wait this test track i've heard this when i was modeling stuff in a notebook mm. oh they're actually a yeah they're a subscriber and then you have some quite big YouTubers who are even, I guess, sponsors, like Peter McKinnon, I, I would assume. Mm, yeah, so he's an ambassador. Ambassador yeah. of epidemi- Epidemic. Yeah. And he's a photographer, right? He's I should photographer, know, but I YouTuber, don't. YouTuber, photographer. Yeah, mm. yeah but so, so, and he has uh, a couple of Swedens of subscribers. So it's like, it's a big world. Yes. Mm. I mean, there's so many different topics to dig uh, into. And, and I think one is the, just the organizational change uh, necessary to start using AI properly mm. and, and not use it for, for the wrong things, but the right things and everything. And um, I, I think we can take that a bit later. Uh, and I would like to just dig a bit deeper into some of your previous work that you have done as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it uh, You can choose a bit what, what you prefer to speak about, but it can either be this kind of record that you held or hold. I'm not sure if it's still mm, the world nah, record. It's, uh, I, no, it's probably beaten this year. Yeah, mm. but that's fine, right? It's good. So to try to res- describe, what was that kind of challenge? Um, um, okay, so, the, so let's say I have an iPhone and I have a microphone. I record you playing piano in the opposite side of the room. It would be pretty cool if I could get out the sheet music mm. just from the microphone signal. Shit, so basically MIDI music from that. Yeah. Or 
So sheet really sheet, that, mean, sheet, sheet music, music would be the actual goal. The actual that would go through the notes to see the notes in a sheet. That would be fantastic. It's like just having your phone on in the in uh, orchestra hall and, the, and oh, give me the sheet music, predict the sheet music, and if it's right, like right enough, then I would be very happy. That would be very cool, very useful. Um, and so that particular challenge that I worked on a couple of years ago was uh, as a downstream. No, it was a subset of this where you only predict the MIDI signal, mm-hmm. which is almost like sheet music, but yeah. it doesn't have it hasn't designed and picked a couple of things first, but mm. uh, but so going from audio to MIDI, you could say a wave to MIDI converter. I and what is MIDI? MIDI is uh, um, a symbolic representation that computers use to to uh, play music, right? So when you in the '90s when you played the, you Duke had the MIDI interface, yeah, yeah. So in, when you played Duke Nukem 3D or whatever, and you could have uh, different sound cards, and they sounded different, it's because the actual audio file wasn't there. They only played back the MIDI file, and then they triggered whatever samples or synthesizers you had on the sound card. Maybe yeah, so it's a symbolic. So you want to go from raw audio data yeah. uh, in some kind of high frequency sampled version mm-hmm. to some kind of MIDI um, yeah. prediction. So how do you do that? What was your approach? And, and don't be too afraid to, to go a bit techy here. Mm-hmm. No, but so, so what's interesting when you look at it, if, you had, if we had graphics here, we could show, I could show it. But it's when you look at the spectrogram, which is then a time frequency representation of the audio signal, meaning uh, at this particular time step, how much bass is it in the signal now and how much treble do I have just now? Mm-hmm. And then you can make many of those slices over time and you can plot them and you get a nice heat map. So over time you see... So you can convert basically audio to some kind of 2D image? Right? Yes, precisely. All right. Mm-hmm. So you can see that as, as a 2D image uh, when you look at like how strong is the frequency at each time step per, for this little signal I measured. And, and that's a very normal, old, nice thing that we use a lot everywhere. Um, but then... Um, when you look at it, it's like, oh, this looks quite close to the to the fundamentals that we have here, the pitch that I perceive. So it's almost done. It's almost MIDI. Mm-hmm. It's almost a done piano roll. But the only thing you need to do now is to remove some of the strong signals in the heat map because they are um, combinations of fundamentals, and some of them are maybe... So what is a fundamental, by the way? And, um, oh, yeah, what is sound, I guess, yeah. right? <laughs> but it's going to be like um, a, a, a sine wave when I'm whistling. I whistle at a specific... Uh, hertz are specific rotation per second, yeah. second, right? And um, sometimes you have sounds that have many overtones. The fundamental would still be then the lowest frequency of those. Yeah, and then but it's a number of overtones above that. Yeah, and many different. Some are, some are harmonics and some are not. And it's very there's a lot of complexity to it when you actually look at it. But mm-hmm. it's a nice mental model to so just think like the the pitch is almost the fundamental frequency. And if we are to to just you know be or make some people listening that are really into you know audio tech kind of technology what type of transformation do you do, do you yeah. use to actually get the spectrogram right so that's a deep learning thing right that's a convolutional neural network or but no, before you so how do you actually get the audio from like raw audio into a spectrogram i mean stff or sdft or cpt mm-hmm. or so i, I don't do know you metal if, uh, spectrogram or do you use uh, so all, all of those are basically the same for deep learning. So it's a some form of 2D representation where you have frequency on yeah. height and time on the on the width. But um, for my case, I use something called constant Q transform, yeah. which is musically motivated, or it can be when you choose the basis functions. But it's not necessarily something we have to go into here. But it's very nice. Librosa.cqt, <laughs> beautiful, very useful. If you ha- if you know you have a musical signal, a Western music signal, I guess, because mm-hmm. there's many. Problems what there is too. music? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that can go very broad, mm-hmm. but fu- but the method I used for predicting then the MIDI signal is um, it would work with a normal short time Fourier transform. Yeah. It doesn't really need, I think, much of the uh, 
shifting around and all the binding and stuff. Uh, Mel spectrograms are nice because they are smaller. Yeah. They maintain most of the interesting parts, we assume. But theoretically, you would get very far eventually by just taking, just take the audio signal. Why even do spectrograms, really? Yeah, it would but, like have an end-to-end kind of... Yeah, and quality, people do yeah. this a lot, and it's like it's scaling kind of not yet, but it's going to probably work. And we know, like, theoretically, that's the lossless end-to-end signal, so that's probably better in the long run. So it's a trade-off of like, I don't want to wait for months to see my result. Okay, so your approach when you know you took the world record was mm. basically you transformed the audio to a CQT yeah. transform. Harmonic CQT, the, so you stack yeah. a couple of partials uh, in channel depth for the CNN. Mm. Uh, What is CNN? A convolutional neural network, right? Or the, the net, or the network on that broadcast news. CNN. I didn't specify. <laughs> um, And what is a convolutional? Yeah, yeah. So, like, if you just theoretically, it's hard, uh, but you could just think of it like you're doing a bunch of Adobe Photoshop blurs, sometimes sharpening. It's the same math. Sometimes you'd make the image you have a little sharper in some directions, a little blur in some directions, whatever. We have the math for that, uh, and here we use that. Um, but we say how exactly how much you want to blur or sharpen the image in multiple passes, and then you're going to downsample the image and make it smaller and stuff. How much you want to blur it and stuff is going to be determined by a bunch of examples of input image and output image to make the input image as often as possible look exactly like the output image. And and that's not hard to do, right? But then the goal then is to make this, when you get a new input image, you want to have the output image still be close to some ground truth label you had. And that's where it gets hard, I guess. Generalization is hard. But fundamentally, it's not weird at all. It's just like, I'm going to do a bunch of random blurs. I'm going to make them less random to get out the target image more often. Okay, audio, CQT, CNN. What, yeah. what, what type of CNN do you use? Uh, uh, actually, con- convolutional LSTM. Yeah. But I don't think it really matters much. What's nice about the convolutional LSTM is that it has very low latency when you want to predict stuff uh, in real time. So you only have to wait on a single uh, frame. In this case, it's a CQT, so it's still a time lag of a couple of seconds. But if it had been short time Fourier transform mm-hmm. or uh, like a log mel spectrogram, then you could do like 10 or 20 millisecond time lag at test time when you predict uh, what am I playing now when you're listening to the audio. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of why I went for it. But then in the state of the art, it's going to be still that you're going to listen back in time as well because it's easy to predict what you played mm-hmm. if I hear what you're going to play. Mm. And yeah, that, yeah. that's just like a implementation limitation that I didn't really want at the time. Okay, so you and go from... the actual record. Sorry, I, I, no. I don't get that. Uh, you measure like on a test set of a uh, couple of playing flutes and clarinets and violins. There's a test set that's on a hosted site in the US where you mm-hmm. submit your code. They run it on those audio files and they match it to the sheet music they had or the MIDI file they had. And they say, uh, these are you got these notes right. You got some notes that weren't in the transcription. You got some notes, you missed some that were. And then you just measure accuracy. Percentage accuracy towards reality. Yeah. So, and that's also, I guess, a discussion point, right? The, that data set, that test data set, is it fair? Is it useful? Yeah. Is it relevant? Uh, you know, who knows? Okay, just to close the, the loop here. So, so input, the raw audio, CQT, you get basically two-dimensional spectrograms. Mm-hmm. Then you have a corner LSTM that predicts something. Yeah. And that something is basically the, the MIDI symbols or a piano roll, which piano can be roll. easily converted into a MIDI signal. So, so a MIDI signal only says what note should it's it's a stream of events that says how long should I do this? Mm. And that's the event. And in a piano roll, you have a discrete time size and you render a matrix. Mm. And that makes it very natural for deep learning. So mm. you could just say this 2D thing should become this 2D thing. 
And, uh, and they even look similar when you just look at them. Like if you gave me a marker, a pen that I could highlight stuff with, I could mm-hmm. almost do this manually. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's like when you look at it, it's like this is an obvious fit for convolutional neural networks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I guess you would call it, uh, yeah, semantic segmentation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a one in the output matrix if the pitch is present at the time. Mm-hmm. And it's a zero if it isn't. Mm-hmm. So uh, as a layman now, has anyone tried to sort of beat uh, this record yeah, with yeah. a completely other technology? Technique? Mm, no. <laughs> or is it always the CNN technique? No, that has, will... yeah, that's a good question, right? So historically, people did a lot of stuff that required a lot of domain knowledge about mm. pianos or mm. acoustics or music. And that, that, that worked well, but it's easier to just not know about that and just right. have a lot of examples. So every paper that I see now does some variant of uh, using convolutional neural networks. And how do you beat, what, what would you do today to beat your own? Mm, good question. Um, yeah. Um, so, for example, I would um, make sure that the piano roll I predicted, if I were to make it back into a piano sounding thing, I rendered it with a sample library of piano tones. Mm-hmm. I would really love if that resulting audio signal sounded kind of similar to the input signal, as a like a nice extra loss term or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is not my idea, but uh, it has been, whatever. But it's a very good idea. Like, you make sure it's consistent. Like, it should sound the same, what comes out. Mm-hmm. And then you have concerns about, like, but the sample library used, that's a different piano, so it's not going to sound exactly mm-hmm. the same. But it's still, that's still going to, minimizing that distance will still be useful, probably. Couldn't we simply use a GPT-3 for this? Or? Yeah, I'm sure. sorry. Yeah, well, well, you know, let's, let, <laughs> no, could, no, could you call go a different way? <laughs> uh, so Transformers but is a very hot topic. Yes. And people use that. Yeah, I see that a lot. So, yeah. like, why was it even an LSTM? Two, it doesn't have to be. Even, even for, for two-dimensional kind of inputs, you yes. can use it. Yes. Yeah. Definitely doesn't have to be an uh, RNN at all. Yeah. Uh, I think I like RNNs because I like the, the theoretical guarantees that it can learn. Um, um, it can, it could learn to parse JavaScript. Like, and I just want to make sure that people understand. I was ironic when saying GPT-3. <laughs> Some people may un- misunderstand no, that. No, but, I, but, but uh, and I and I catch on to it because everything can be done with GPT-3 <laughs> No, we now. can really not. So <laughs> it's so important to make sure. Okay. Um, let's I'm just skipping that one. <laughs> yeah, surprisingly, Carl didn't uh, comment that. No, so, you know, we yeah, had a discussion before. And we shouldn't assume on. that people uh, saw the last podcast yeah. where we had a lot of discussions on GPT-3. So what is yeah. GPT-3? Yeah. Okay. So no, 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 you only get, no, 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 you only get ten seconds. Regressive language model. Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, it's one of the biggest models ever released. Uh, I think big, Google has had a bigger one very recently released that is like yeah. five times so, bigger. But still, it's like hundreds line, of billions. Google it. Yeah, hundreds, much. hundreds of billions of parameters uh, trained in a very simple way and can predict the next word in a surprisingly yeah. good way and it's used for this memory, kind of general tasks. Model. Okay. But it's not for you know every kind of use case you can think of oh. and I just want to make that yeah. clear and now we stop it. Don't, we already yeah. we talked about this already yeah. but used for reference yeah we use acronyms so that's why yeah GPT isn't even an acronym at this point it's no. more like a sub uh, a word it's a noun at no. this point it's weird it became yeah. such a mainstream noun yeah exactly so I've been this has been so much now so what does it even stand for yeah exactly <laughs> who knows it doesn't like yeah it doesn't it's a word now GPT-2, uh, right. uh, But it, it, it does stand for generative pre-trained transformers. But anyway, it doesn't matter. And I guess the keyword is transformer. And transformers yeah. are interesting, but I don't think... Um, yeah, like whatever you use for sequence modeling, mm. it's still gradient descent and you still optimize something with backprop. So I don't, mm. I don't, like in that part of it, it's not that interesting to me. What, what uh, do you think so we sorry, would, guys. Yeah. What's the idea of a transformer? What, what, what you, we, you're sh- throwing this too fast. It's uh, not the car that m- m- turns into a robot. 
I don't know if they even named that because of that. It could have been <laughs> transformer. That's what but, I thought. Uh, I usually use that picture of the, the yeah. transformer. G Autobot T3, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, now we confuse people even more. Yes. Yeah. Um, but so the core part of transformers, if I had to say it in one, two or two sentences, it is that you care that you make the model care about what, where the input that it wanted to use, where it was, right? So it has attention. Mm. So like, oh, the part of the sentence where there is important stuff for my prediction, I maybe I should look at where it was and do stuff about that. Mm. And that's a very layman's kind of, yeah. But, uh, but attention uh, is, uh, is, yeah, so the, uh, attention is a normal word, can mean many things, but just like what part of the input was relevant for, for making this prediction. prediction. And maybe you should exploit that there's a stronger signal in parts of the input uh, for this particular prediction. Maybe the model should be aware of this. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a very super high level explanation. But um, so RNNs also cannot do this and you can have attention in many types of networks. It doesn't really matter, right? But um, so I think the actual reason we have transformers now so much is because they have, uh, they don't lock the next time step. They scale super well. They're very fast comparatively. So just to comment quickly about that, I mean, Google had this paper, uh, self-attention is all you need, very controversial kind of uh, title for it, basically saying you don't... Self-attention is all you need. Attention is all you need. Attention is... This sounds like a Beatles song, yeah? Yeah, yeah. not all tension. (laughs) Attention, attention. (laughs) Yeah, but that one, yeah. Um, But but basically says you you can use self-attention instead of... uh, uh, recurrent neural networks or convolutional neural networks, uh, but we, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens in the future, I guess. But, but do you think um, they can be used? They will basically replace RNNs, for example, in in long term. Or? Nah, I think it's different different stuff. I think we're going to see models that have a little bit all over everywhere. So mm-hmm. the whole differentiable f- functional programming paradigm, where it's like maybe an RNN is good here because it's mm-hmm. a parametric reduce function. Now, we want to reduce this list to a single vector. We don't know how. No. Yeah, used to parametric reduce, and it was called RNNs 10 years ago. And then we're going to have in the same network, you're going to have a couple of transformer modules and mix around stuff, and some are pre-trained, some are not. And you're going to take that from a marketplace, you're going to fine-tune this part, you're going to take this computer vision module and uh, use this machine listening module and combine them. You're going to play around with it a lot. I think that's the future of it. So fundamentally... Mixing. Mixing, yeah, hybrids or whatever you call it. So like when people say there are CNNs and then there are also RNNs, I feel like more like it's a, no, it's a symbolic expression. It's a differentiable expression and that's it. And then you can have many types of, as long as it's differentiable uh, and just minimize whatever objective you had. Mm. And, and that's, I guess, core deep learning. And then the questions then is like tractability or where do we start? This search space sounds huge. And that's why we have graduate student descent. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's, oh, that, that's actually a good segue, I think, into another topic. Um, yes. I'm not sure if you've seen the one of the Lex Friedman shows with Jer- Jeremy Howard, you know, the founder of Fast AI, and he was, I think, previous president of Kaggle as well. Mm-hmm. He basically said um, most research research in deep learning is a complete waste of time. Yeah, but he's right, I guess. By the way, I still have to do it, so whatever. Do you think that there is a way to to improve the you know the focus done in deep learning research to to make it? I mean, if he, if he, if he meant papers where you add a couple of more layers to a thing, and you had a baseline which says CNN, you had some layers and you had this little extra auxiliary classifier loss, whatever, mm. and you see that you get a little improvement on a test set. I think he refers to like you know you want to have the, the frenzy of com- coming in top of the I'm leaderboard lost, guys, or some kind of okay. old <laughs> type of uh, you know data set somewhere and. It's not really focusing on actually get operationalizing or getting value for mm, the, okay. the value in a company in some way. But we could have research on that too. Yeah, exactly. So the world is very big. So I don't, I don't the, mind that people are 
curious about how far can I get with as little data points as possible? Mm. How good can I generalize for having article classifiers? So that's actually one of his favorite topics, active learning, as we spoke about. So mm. really, that's one of what he says, one of the most, most important topics to, to actually work with and do research about to have true value um, in a company that actually make use of AI properly. The assumption then is that the data comes from something in the real world, so yep. you can't use self-supervision. Yep. Um, because yeah, that's also like still use that, but okay, yeah. uh, maybe for pre-training, uh, GPT. Mm -hmm. But um, self-supervision is uh, my f my favorite. Yeah, I mean certainly, and yeah. that's where deep learning scales and allows them to think about like, mm, well, how did you label the data? No, it's explicit in the Python code, yeah. so we don't even have we can get commit to it. If you want to change my assumption of how the targets relate to the inputs. Mm. You get okay, try, try to give like a layman's uh, description of self-supervision. Uh, Mm -hmm. I, so a, a colleague said a fun sentence that I liked yesterday on a presentation. He said it's um, it's where you have sup uh, supervised learning, but you withhold some of the data, and that's like eh, I guess it's true, but uh, it's um, but it's um, almost easiest with an example, right? Mm -hmm. If I had colorized photographs, I know how to program a black and white version of that same photograph. That's super easy. I remove one of the channels, or all of them have one left, and where do I mean of the channels, the color channels? Uh, but then going the opposite direction, like, how do I do that? I have no idea. I mean, as a human, I would do it. I could do it with a colored pencil. This looks like a dog. It's probably brown or gray. Mm. And this looks like a tree. It's probably green or brown. I can do all of these things, right? So there's some signal still in the uh, grayscale image that would be helpful to predict if uh, predicting colors. And, and going the opposite direction then uh, could do, uh, that could be a machine learning problem. Nice. Mm. And now, since it's uh, easy to generate my uh, inputs, I can always destroy colorized photos and make them black and white. I have essentially infinite training data. Mm. So, so why do you have such a passion and interest in self-supervised uh, learning? What do you think the advantage is compared oh, to when normal supervised learning? Yeah, so, so in normal supervised learning, I guess it's implied that you need humans to annotate stuff. Yeah. And in this case, you're going to go, hmm, no, I'm going to script my annotator. Mm. So I am the annotator, but I do it with a Python script. And Automate basically the annotation part. Pretty much, yes. yes. And, and, oh, exactly, I guess. And and, and then in self-supervision research, they also often talk about a downstream task. So this pre-training isn't the end goal for many. So you maybe you train a computer vision model on colorizing black and white photos because it's actually going to be good at saying which cancer this is in this image. Mm. So that there's a downstream task after the pre-text task. Uh, but for me, it's like, I don't know if that's important. The self-supervision task, if that's the goal, mm. awesome. And the most obvious self-supervision thing we have, I guess, is autoencoders, right? Like, how do you label the data? Uh, it's the same. Mm. It's going to be itself. Yeah. That's very easy to script. You don't even have to script it. Yeah. Just connect the input to the output and... So, so basically, it makes it easier for companies to to train models. Because no you don't need data to scaling problems. Yeah, so yeah, you can so have as much need. data as you want. Need. Yeah, and you don't need to annotate data, I guess. Yes. Yeah. So I have a project now, at Epidemic Sound, about mm. music similarity. Yeah. And then there's there are popular modern self supervision approaches, but they do uh, make it or break it on the assumption of what is uh, similar. Mm. So you're gonna have maybe like a triplet loss where you want to say like this part of the song goes into my forward pass in my network, I get an embedding, and it's going to be close to something, some other song that went through the same network, and it's going to be far, I want it to be far from some other uh, song segment part, whatever, that went through the same network. Mm. So it's just like a standard triplet loss. But then you have to select, like, what is similar, similar, what's a positive example, what's a negative example, and then you have to have some domain knowledge still. 
Which but I, they which, don't do it manually still. Yeah, no, papers are going to go like, hmm, so we assume for our domain, for our type of audio signal or our type of image or whatever, we're going to assume that uh, changing the hue is still the same object mm. or changing exactly. the pitch is still the same mood. Yeah. So you can have those invariants and then you get a nice self-supervision loop mm. where you can like augment the, or destroy the data and say, this is still the same. So it still should, should still be positive. Yeah. Or, or the same with negative, right? So if you distort the data in a certain way, you can design it to say this should not be similar. Mm. That's super powerful. Have we gone, uh, lost you yet, Henrik, or is it? Well, I'm starting to drink beer more than <laughs> I was zooming out now. But what's nice about it is that you don't have to think about the relationship between inputs and targets. Mm. It's explicit. But let, let's, let's, let's do this. So what's the application of what we're talking about now? So let's, I, I want to, what's the main application uh, of these? So the most famous product currently mm-hmm. launched like last month is NVIDIA's uh, DLSS 2. Mm-hmm. So that's deep learning super sampling 2.0, mm-hmm. whatever, uh, which they launched now with the new graphics cards. And it's very nice. And everyone's very happy. Like, oh, it looks so good. And, um, and the AA stands for anti-aliasing. So removing sharp edges in a 3D picture of a game, right? So making my Counter-Strike Go match look even smoother mm-hmm. uh, without having to render the game at a high resolution and then downsample it because that's the old school approach, right? Just render it in a high resolution and then when you're going to downsample, you can make it in a smooth way because you have more pixels to work with mm-hmm. or you do some random small multi-sampling, super sampling, whatever, many techniques. Here we just say, uh, I can parameterize the smoothing, the edge detection smoothing thing mm-hmm. by just rendering the game, scenes from the game offline. I don't need to have a high FPS for that. It could be one FPS, a kind of a server farm. It could be an extremely expensive computer cluster. So, and that's fine. As long as the forward pass that results from this is uh, faster or prettier looking at the end result than the current best anti-aliasing approaches. And at this point with the 2.0 release, I think it's like, it looks good, right? It's like, it's very easy to get the training data, mm. render the game in high resolution and, mm. and your normal resolution. And then you predict mm. from one to the other. It's obvious self-supervision thing, right? Mm. I, I, had another, I had another question. So maybe we're jumping now, uh, if, if we can take it later. But I, I want to come into what's the main um, opportunities or CNN ch- work you're doing f- for what purpose in uh, Epidemic Sound? Mm. Yeah. So... Um, Is that the right time? Yeah, no, it's perfectly fine. Yeah. It's a very broad question. But, um, so what are you working on and to what, what's the customer application yeah. that you're so trying to figure out? Uh, we have many projects at the same time, time, same time now, so I'm a little confused. Um, so one part of it is that Epidemic Sound wants to scale. And when you scale, it's going to be probably hard to have humans doing decisions. So we want to ha- make them faster, not necessarily replace them. That's not the goal. But if you could give them initial suggestions for their ordinary work, that's great, right? Mm-hmm. So like, oh, which people should I send out the newsletter to? Oh, probably this. Okay, if that system is helpful and good, we're very happy. And that's probably machine learning or data-driven. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's been a lot about um, Epidemic Sound wants a bigger catalog. We want to work with more musicians. We want to take in more songs. Those require manual review. Uh, it's like, are, are they done yet? Do they sound good? And also like annotations, so they are searchable and browsable. So someone has to fill in which instruments are in the track. Someone has to fill in which mood it is. It's quite hard, probably, for humans to fill in the mood consistently 
and the same way every day because then maybe you're sad one day and you're like, you're a little different that day or whatever. Or you change employees and there you have different... Or simply s- sheer size to do it. At yeah, the even the speed of it, right? But I don't, for Epidemic Sound, I'm not worried about having like 10 tracks per second. So it's gonna, you're going to have time to do it, but it's not, not the most fun work to do. And if you could get some nice initial suggestions of like, this is obviously sounding like a pop song with a guitar, Please confirm. But That's a nicer work. A perfect example of like using AI together with humans is yes, really the best way to do it. And as That's the only way I would do it, I think. Yeah. That's interesting. You think it does the way? Yeah, Explain, uh, elaborate yeah. on that. Uh, okay, so autonomy mm. should remain in the hands of the user. I think mm. that's going to feel very important. I have no like reasoning for this. It just feels like it's going to be more important than we think. And there are definitely machine learning applications where you can't have uh, autonomy in the hands of the users. Uh, so a recommendation system is the obvious one where like, I, don't, I won't have time. I can't personalize recommendations to all of our millions of users. So we're, gonna, we're just gonna roll with the initial suggestions we got and we're gonna send them out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if I could use a human in that loop, I would. And uh, whenever I can, I want to, because I, I, we ha- working with machine learning, you know there's many problems with out of domain examples and like how do I detect anomalies to do abort or what do I do can I have tests skew over time probably maybe not for genres because musical genres don't move so much over time over 10 years yes but not daily but if we're talking about churn prediction how ugh, is, am I making good predictions yeah I guess I need a label for that who gives me the label probably a human cool if we go to a bit more kind of like a philosophical question perhaps but okay we, we want to use AI together with humans but yeah. possible at least and uh, we can assume that humans are good at some stuff and AI is good at other stuff. Do you have any sense for, you know, what stuff is AI good for that human may not be good for and vice versa? Yeah. Uh, I mean, AI is a could, since the AI effect, it could be that AI is actually as good as humans at everything in 10 years. So, but mm-hmm. clap. But uh, when we talk about... That's another interesting question. <laughs> <by the> way, <laughs> but but yeah. when we talk about deep learning or machine learning and stuff, where you do pattern matching and you're mm. finding similar stuff uh, across instances, um, it, I would equate it to being like, you have a colleague who you don't, you know, they're, they're not the best of the group. Like they're probably actually the worst of the group, but they are so quick and they get so much done. Mm. So it's still useful. I'm like, oh, so wait, I spent one time with one customer and you've gone through 100 customers already. Whoa, that's very fast. Uh, there's value in being fast. It's, there's value in being uh, consistently stupid. And then we can work around those hard classify, uh, hard examples to classify. Mm. So maybe we should just, um, I don't know. I, I like saying like you're scaling human decisions by g- providing initial suggestions, right? You're mm-hmm. not automating anything. I don't. The prediction for me is a suggestion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so another you way. can take that into so many different fields, of course. Yeah. So this is for any type of machine learning system. I would like it to be a suggester. Mm-hmm. It suggests, and uh, sometimes it uh, even goes out to production, but it's still a suggestion. Yeah. So when you see an end user product feature, it's, it's all, it usually says for uh, recommended for you by mm-hmm. our. Machine learning, whatever. Empowered something. Mm. Empowered, yeah, right. And that's a very good, it's a very important sentence to have. Yeah. So, wh- okay, sorry for another more like philosophical question, but um, what would you say the major differences are today with the human brain and deep learning systems? <laughs> what, what did you say? I Different neurons, know. softness, <laughs> spiking. I have How much do we know about the brain? Uh, people maybe do, I know nothing. How do I think? Mm. I don't know. Yeah, I think, and I think well sometimes. Uh, how I don't know. Mm. I like I, that there are people thinking about this. 
I know you said you, you're going to try to turn the tables here, <laughs> and, and I'm very eager to actually to speak about that. But I shouldn't really oh, on. do that. We, we, we need no. to. This is coming back every time. Speak well, up. Okay. Speak up. This, how what do you think? Why do, do we think? care? Why do we care? I have a toolbox. Yeah. It's good. good. It's useful. Why do, do you I think care? we should move closer uh, from deep learning to human brains, or should we move in another direction? You think? To make what? What's the goal? What, why more do we care? More use. So we more want value. to make, like, if we want to build AGI, more value for more from value. a company point if you want of view. for if, Epidemic Sound. Yeah. So if Epidemic Sound or a company now today wants value, yeah. machine learning is ready. It has been for f- decades. Yeah. It's been good for decades, and then deep learning has been good for a, for one decade, mm. right? And it's valuable today. Mm. So you can build these things; they will be very powerful. You could disrupt competitors. There are competitors. still challenges with deep learning, right? E, so, not in terms of making useful product features that work good enough, if you know the constraints of it. So, if you think about deep learning methods, uh, not in terms of AI or intelligence, and you think in terms of pattern recognition and just finding similar patterns in a big p- chunk of data, mm. then it's already useful. But I useful, think yes. But but what should the next direction be to, to make it even more useful, yeah. even more valuable? You know, what, what are the, the best it. ways? Yeah, I think actually, like it's, if we started using it, uh, yeah, we haven't okay. plateaued at all. And and like, I'm, I've been in deep learning for for maybe five years now, and it's still um, still surprising that we haven't even started building stuff. Yeah, and like, why? The think short that list is? of Perhaps good ideas, like this should be an app. Why isn't you know, it? I think Epidemic Sound is actually one of the best examples of companies actually starting to use AI yeah. properly. So, but still, I guess there are challenges to actually making even more value from AI. And, yes. and, and if you were to try to, to just think about that, what are the main challenges to even you know, increase the value of deep learning in Epidemic Sound? Mm-hmm. What would that be? Use it more, n- not make it more sophisticated. Is that what you're saying? Sorry. Kind of, yeah. Kind of. Like in terms of pattern matching, this toolbox is good. And then AI people interested in um, reasoning in this, they they could still work on that and research that. And that's not necessarily ready for applications yet. And that's fine. I love that there are smart people thinking about how the brain works mm. and that they share what they know with smart people thinking about how machine learning works. Um, but that feels so far off. Mm. From a, if you have a day to day where you try to implement a nice recommendation system that recommends songs, mm. why even think about it, how you your brain works? Like it's so far out of left field. I don't know. I, I really resonate with your simple example. You know, simple. I'm question. a programmer. So. You no, know, why? Mm. Because I, I think this is a little bit like: Are we on the 2030 agenda or are we on the 2020 agenda? And I think the problem is right now that we end up in these huge conversations on ethical AI or, mm. you know, a, you know, a, um, AI, AGI, when a, actually what the whole idea is literally, you know what, how to get value out of uh, deep learning and neural networks and all that, why don't you simply learn enough of what is in production or usable today and simply apply it to those skills and like that? Because I, I think... The more we talk, like this is the 2030, th- this gap of what is reality and what can be done uh, just gets bigger and bigger when I simply say you get started. Get started, mature, use what is out there now. Mm. And then by using it and learning it, you get value here. And then you will you, you will progress. You will naturally push the boundaries. So I, I, I resonate with this stuff because I feel like the conversation is 
becomes more and more and more philosophical instead of becoming more and it more. Tends to yeah, and, but, and we can do both. I want really. We need strong, to do both. I want super strong basic research funded, and and I want super smart people thinking about what they want to think about uh, deeply and and be able to do that. That's very nice. A society needs that, and AI researchers. I I love the topic. It's very nice, but working with machine learning, um, I apply. I apply it, and it's mm. useful already. And what's the, the challenges to simply apply yeah, it they today? They, they, so the challenges are uh, way d- b- different from the thoughts about how does it reason, does this exactly. pattern match your work or exactly. not? I mean, I, I know it works. It does work. It generalizes surprisingly well to my quite hard test set. Mm. So I'm kind of done, but then I have the work for in front of me. And and now what's that yeah, work? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. What is that work? Because I think before we turn on the cameras, you know, what are you working on in reality in a place like Epidemic Sound that yep. is even quite mature compared to a lot of other companies? You're still working on the be- be- some of the fundamentals around change in organization. So I'm I'm curious. You know, it's great. You, your work is done. But your work is not done because now you need to educate. Mm. You need to bring it into. So production. my proof of concept is done. I can commit to trying to do this for real now. When our my work starts. Yeah, and what is that? Yeah, uh, and that's a very hard question because I don't really know. I think it's a lot it's about understanding possible. between people. Mm-hmm. So getting predictions into uh, organization, uh, it comes with uncertainty. That's kind of in its nature, and being robust for uncertainty and and, and knowing that you won't know if you're right before a t- certain time frame has passed. Mm. That isn't natural for many organizations, right? You take a decision, you have a history, maybe, but you, like the decisions are now, not eventually. Um, so it's, I don't know, like I have OKRs, right? Uh, does anyone, I guess OKR oh, is normal? Operational. Uh, objective key key results, objective but results, um, OKRs. But the, so like measurable, attainable goals over a year or a smart quarter. key results. Yeah. Mm. Oh, acronyms. We need um, smart OKRs. <laughs> yes. uh, but smart so, actually is another acronym, but uh, that's another story. Yeah. So specific, measurable, attractive, realistic, yeah, exactly. time. Something like that. Yeah. 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 Not sustainable, I guess. Um, but in OKRs, you go. My my current one, one of them is uh, to make machine learning a natural part of epidemic sound, mm. and that's not measurable necessarily. Like it's more like a gut feeling check. Mm, are we? No. Uh, well, but you could put metrics on uh, how many definitely how many yeah, algorithms point, is out there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But then the point isn't necessarily to have it measurable. That's an exercise. I think the the goal is to just have um, aligning. Like, where are we going? Do we have a shared idea where we're going? And the OKRs are just a, a, a vehicle to facilitate that alignment. Mm. And now when we landed in this, this OKR of like, we want machine learning to be a natural part of our organization. Mm. This involves, uh, I mean, I'm going to start small. So I'm going to start with tech people and that's mm. hard enough. And then we're going to go into the uh, chief marketing officer. There's so many divisions, mm. different departments doing different things. So, but the, the goal is still like, they should all understand that certain types of Excel sheets, certain types of data streams and certain types of problems are super easy to solve if you th- know that you can predict some stuff. And I, and now we're now we're back to sort of that's what we said before the camera is a little bit like oh we're working on the same problem I'm working on this problem in an enterprise setting yep. and you're working on it here and 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 what in in a way also humbles me is that uh, I think to to people looking from the outside. Oh, Epidemic Sound is one of the few guys who are positioning and doing stuff with AI and they're quite mature in this. And still the fundamentals of going on a data and AI, I call this the data and AI readiness journey. Mm. So to, to do yeah. to apply ML is about organization, ways of working, thinking, you know, 
differently about how you looked at a problem before to that actually, and you need to learn about how to apply machine learning, all that. So essentially, even in, in one of the most sophisticated companies, I would say perception wise in Sweden around, actually we have, you have done quite a bit. You're still on that same journey, maybe a little bit further than uh, a traditional company, but, but the essential journey doesn't go away. No, probably not. And, and so you have to have a belief or an ideology that these things will be good or useful for my bottom line or for the world. And to push and to severe, to persevere. Yeah. So I mean, then you go like, why does Epidemic Sound focus on data science? Mm. Uh, mm. Partially, it could be because Thanks. competitors do it, right? So, so like there's some FOMO, you want to be relevant. And, and if they do it, maybe we should too. But in, in but I feel I still feel like in this particular case with this particular company, they have thought it through a little bit more than that. Like we don't only do AI because it's cool and everyone else does it. It's because there are particular pipelines that should and will scale very well mm. with a little machine learning scikit-learn model in that loop. And uh, the tech is quite ready, um, but the journey is still going. Uh, and it, I, I don't feel like we have gotten that far as far as I would like. I guess that's never true. But it's, this is such a, how, how should I put it? it it's all relative, right? Mm. So you're talking like, you know, the nerdiest guys, the nerdiest conversation I've heard in a long time <laughs> and you, and we haven't started. And I'm no, like, oh my I God. I don't think we've gotten started yet. <laughs> Not really, no. no. But okay, so we, we really want to understand, you know, what the main challenges of um, yes. getting value from AI is. Mm. And I think it's interesting to hear from companies like uh, Epidemic Sound and that actually have gotten further than the most. Still are so if we were to, to speak about, you know, to other companies that want to take that, this journey in a, as good way as possible, this is a tough question, but, you know, yeah. is there something you would recommend them, them to do or not to do to just get faster on the journey to mm. become AI ready? It's, uh, it's so hard. Right. Yeah. And it shouldn't be. And when you look at it, how hard can it be? So it's very, it's almost dangerously easy to, to conceptualize it as very trivial. Mm. Uh, just getting a, a good machine learning data scientist person, they do some notebooks as a proof of concept. You just deploy that in paper mill and then you're done. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. So the AI cloud, 10 minutes done. Uh, it's, it's, uh, but, but then like, okay, so we, we agree this is not it. That's not how it works. But then why is it hard? What are the hurdles? And they are so many and so spread out all over that I don't really know. Uh, but for smaller companies, it requires considerable commitment to say, bef like before you actually see the first, before you harvest your first fruit or whatever, mm. you, you're probably going to spend like two years mm. uh, of uh, actual real world time to even get out the first working system. Mm. Uh, if you're one person doing it, two people doing it, whatever, because that's been... An but and now you're talking about hardcore neural network type stuff. Mm, or, yeah, or I guess everything really, because if you, even if you do like uh, decision trees on uh, tabular data, you're still going to be very, it's still going to be extremely important to monitor the system, make sure it's still working, retraining yeah. it. How do you even retrain it? Like, do you just do it? Do you have a version... Yeah. Of models. So, so bottom line, taking something from a POC, you know, that you, that you flip around to something that is fundamentally useful in production and that is reliable, but have the validity to really be used. Yeah. It's a different ball game. Yeah. Uh, and maybe that's older than machine learning, but A-B testing is relevant still. Mm. Knowing that you know is still the most important question in my work. Mm. How do you know that you know what you say you know? Ugh. 
hard. What's in that book? I'm curious. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're sending secret messages. Secret, messages. Yeah. secret messages. <laughs> no, but I, I guess one one question, uh, at least in my experience that I've seen in a lot of companies, it, they don't really understand uh, what AI is and, and they mm. have a wrong view of what AI is. That's chapter one, right? Understanding yeah. what it's not. Yeah. And some people think it's analytics and it's mm. things about building dashboards, Happened which is... Yeah. Last year, like yeah. we naturally became advanced analytics, mm. uh, which is fundamentally different, but it's very hard to explain why. Mm. But everyone who's worked a little with it knows it's different. Mm. Um, and then just having the whole company align around that idea that we mm. have analytics as well, but it's different. Mm. That takes time. I mean, it's interesting to hear that you also had that problem. Yes. Even, uh, even know, now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not it's today, still, actually, but last year. Yeah. And, you know, also in, in Epidemic Sound, that is so forward, but... Um, I, I can certainly resonate with that has been one of the toughest challenges for a lot of companies to, to mm. have the right view of it. And not speaking about the analytical ladder, ladder that we spoke about last yes. time, right? Which is confusing people to such a great extent, uh, which is kind of sad. Okay, so, but AI can be used in various ways and there are a number of challenges to get that working. Technology in some way is, is there to actually build the model, but would you say also that technology is there to operationalize it, to actually put it in production somehow? <laughs> yes, I mean, obviously, yes, uh, yes. Making the tools, I mean, why isn't there a Excel or Photoshop for deep learning yet? There should be, obviously. And mm. it's, it's but, but are you saying that the technology is ready for it? No. Or it, no. Yeah. It no, sounded no, so like you said it was ready. No, for no, it. And, but it's surprising why it isn't. I guess it takes time. But when you're looking even at like Google's open source projects, uh, TensorFlow Extended or um, mm. Kubeflow Pipelines, it's called which AI is AI platform nowadays. But yeah, yeah. So, so in AI platform, you have a, a product called Kubeflow Pipelines, mm. which is a 1.0. Uh, mm. But it doesn't feel like 1.0. Mm. It feels more like it's still in like a beta kind of, you haven't really, it's not API stable. I don't think it's going to, it's going to change. It's going to be a 2.0 soon. Mm. And maybe there's some business um, incentives to get it out. So maybe they got some push on them. It's like, no, no, engineers, you have to, 1.0, you want it now, come on. Mm. But when I, as a consumer of it, as a practitioner of applying machine learning and making it robust, mm. I don't think Google or Facebook, even them have kind of figured it out. Right. And um, that's my feeling. It's as quite well. far and partially because of math and theoretical sides of it that we don't really understand, but a lot of it is just like getting the work done. Mm. I have I have a feature list of stuff I need, or I think I need anyway, in a machine learning framework, mm. and I haven't found a single framework that fulfills them. Yeah. But that, could I just ask you? Could you could you elaborate on the epidemic sound stack? You yeah, know, sure, be, sure, you sure. Know, what, where do you do There's your a lot storage? Of Okay, you know, mm-hmm. but so, so let, let's start, let, let's go the whole way, right? Well, yeah. you, you run in the cloud, right? Yeah, so so everything now is kind of Google Cloud and then Data Warehouse is BigQuery, which is Big great. Qu- yeah, mm-hmm. and then, and then okay, so let's talk about the, the stack now. So sure. like go through the, from the storage, data engineers, and, and then how do, you, how do you sort of see the, the flow, mm-hmm. workflow? Yeah, uh, that's, that's, a, that's a constantly changing thing as yeah. well because there's ec- explicitly there's people here who are doing stuff and they come yeah. in and they leave and they change work and we have yeah. more and less and... Uh, but it's, the stack is very GCP oriented, which I think yeah. is a good thing. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and that's, why is that? Um, yeah, Google global, Cloud. Global cloud. So when oh. Google Cloud platform. platform but, so yeah. when you um, the, the the nice thing about saying okay, vendor lock-in is a problem, but let's not care about vendor lock-in now. It's that you can actually uh, use all of those nice tricks between the products that they offer 
Uh, and not be worried. Like, okay, we that we put that on the backlog to be not... It's simpler to be in one universe. It is, it is. And that's kind of a nice thing. So like saying like BigQuery pops up in Google Sheets. Uh, kind of neat. I'm using that at work for some reporting for fun. And then uh, we use a lot of BigQuery, obviously Google Storage. Uh, feature Store, no idea. Uh, <laughs> should we use Hopwork, Hopsworks? Maybe. Should we use mm. something? I don't know. Mm. Uh, and then now it's DVC a lot, which I like. Uh, but it's, uh, and, where, 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 and where is your sort of modeling uh, air, um, environment and how do you deploy stuff? Mm-hmm. So everything is very Kubernetes oriented, which means containers. Mm-hmm. And that's a great thing, really. That yeah. should have been a default for From We should have understood that. Imagine all the notebook crap. Yeah, but I don't mind if you have a notebook in your container. Yeah, yeah. As long as you have it in a container. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> good, good you cool. can do whatever. <laughs> Do you see any challenges with actually, you know, managing and orchestrating a Kubernetes cluster? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what happened let's go quite there. quickly after that let's was done was that uh, there was a need for a horizontal team that kind of was working on that only. Yeah. Uh, and, but that's fine. I, I don't. I think that's okay. It doesn't. Sometimes I think about um, Kubernetes as uh, GDPR. Uh, the intent is super good. And you really, really want to achieve the intent of GDPR. And, and for sure, you want to achieve the intent of Kubernetes. But sometimes you question the type of implementation they have done to, to no, try yeah, to. No, I agree. Accept. It's definitely, right? it's still growing. It's still changing. Uh, data scientists shouldn't work with Kubernetes. Mm. But if you have a Kubernetes platform by default from your application developer, so they're already using it for Django or whatever, mm. uh, then you're going to be able to use a lot of the tools that are built on top of Kubernetes. Mm. And that's where it becomes uh, right. probably normal soon and powerful. Yeah. So in, if, if we say Kubeflow pipelines, yeah. uh, whatever that is, um, that's running on Argo yeah. and that's running on Kubernetes. Yeah. Okay, so 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 where, where do you draw the distinction of the toolbox of the machine learning engineer and the data ops engineer? So uh, they your, are quite similar, right? Yeah, yeah. They have slightly different uh, interests. But, but Kubernetes is belongs to whom? Uh, no, so they're just different. Like we also have DevOps, right? Yes, so yes. if you say data operations or whatever uh, you yeah, call yeah, it, yeah. Uh, data engineers, mm. uh, our data engineers have uh, they're using Airflow, all right, which is uh, fine, right? It's battle tested. But uh, and then there's like, oh, there's hyped new tools. We should use that instead. There's some Argo weird ETL thing. Yeah, sure, but that's not battle tested. Then, but the airflow in itself is deployed in Kubernetes, so they still have to manage it, even though it's like managed by Google Cloud with uh, oof, Cloud Compose. Right. Can, now, this is going to be fun. Now you have mentioned all these different brands or different open source stuff. Yeah. Could you explain your stack with the different core capabilities? So instead of saying airflow, what does it do? I need, I need a word. Yeah, it's so a work scheduler, right? ETL no. scheduler. So, so basically, yeah. l- let's now not use the brands of the open source, but let's talk about the stack. What are the components of your stack? What, what do they do? It's the keyword here, data lake. Because uh, <laughs> that's a Google storage bucket. Yeah, but yes. whatever. Okay, so we have a data storage bucket, data lake. Okay. Yeah. And then we, then you said Kubernetes. It's the container stuff. Yeah, so for orchestrating and auto-scaling then any type of server, any type of workload. It okay. could be a machine learning model that predicts stuff. Yeah, and then you said Airflow. What does Airflow do? Schedules uh, data pipelines. Workflow orchestration, stuff like this. Pretty much. Okay. And then we use it to ingest stuff from data source to data source. Yeah. And then we talked about CI, CD, continuous integration. In, you know, where do, you, where do that, we go that here? That shouldn't be a exotic thing, I hope. Uh, that should be more like a, oh, yeah, obviously we have that. That's like, obviously we have a Git repo. Obviously you, you, okay, we have CI. But you, you'll be surprised. Yeah, you yeah, I know. You'll be surprised uh, how many, how far off we are and people still think about this as advanced analytics. If you go into my repos, you're going to see that they don't really have coverage either. But the ambition uh, is, should be obvious. So what do you do? What do you do for CI/CD? Uh, I, cloud build is good. 
but now we're gonna go for GitHub Actions because it's uh, yeah, such a huge, yeah. huge thing. And if that's default on GitHub, people mm. will learn it in school. Even though mm. it's a Microsoft thing these days. Yes, but uh, that's also a thing. Right? So Epidemic uh, has already used a little bit of Azure because okay. we okay. like it kind of. It's, uh, it's well, well, so you have Azure for something and GCP for For CD, right? So some CD stuff is Azure oriented. Okay. So you, you're not, are you worried about mixing clouds or not? Not if it's very well encapsulated. But there's definitely a little headache in terms of like how do I authenticate my G Cloud command line here? Yeah. Have to and just to unravel CD, I mean, some people think continuous deliveries, others say continuous I mean, deployments. deployments. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What are we talking about here? Deployment? Mm. Yeah. yeah, good. Okay. And what do you use for visualizations? Uh, you said BigQuery for warehousing. Mm. But how, and how do you use ongoing uh, discovery? And, so we and, don't and what do you give your, your your business users? Yeah, so that's an ongoing discovery for the analytics organization, which I'm not formally part of, right? I'm working mm. tech. So, so this is analytics. Did, yeah. I, that's I really different, right? how we are how we are really now exemplifying. <laughs> this is advanced analytics. This is machine learning engineer yeah. that we that's talked two about. Things. But then two if we things. use the same shared language, yes. it would be powerful. Yes. So mm. if analytics start using Looker, yeah, then and I'm going to be interested. In lo- using so Looker. Looker is the visualization tool of GCP, right? No, there's it's one of them. One of them. <laughs> there's yeah. many. Uh, so <laughs> Data Studio is very good. Uh, that's good enough for many. Yeah. It's lightweighter. Uh, is that a word? Yeah. Uh, so Data Studio, I yeah, I'm using Google Sheets. Honestly, yeah. it has I, been I think we, we mentioned so many different techniques now. I think it could be nice to try, try to encapsulate that in, in what we have been speaking about for a bit uh, right now, and then get back a bit to your passion as well, which yes. is music. Uh, yeah. and speak a bit about that before we run out of time and <laughs> I love get it. Too, too drunk from the beers or whatnot. But anyway, so we've been, you know, for one, speaking about, um, you know, how really to accelerate AI in in different companies. And there are a number of challenges. One is the techniques behind simply deep learning. And we have a lot of progress there and, and we can do a lot of stuff. But then there is a number of techniques necessary to actually put it in production and actually get value from it. There, there are a number of challenges, right? Yeah, yeah. If you would agree, yes. yes. And uh, and then we have the whole like competence, understanding. You know, how do we really make machine learning a natural part of epidemic sound, as you said, yeah. right? And, and that's kind of is it's more of an educational Could journey. Or? I think that's part of the solution. Mm. Yeah. So everyone has to know more. Mm. Helps. And then we have a number of techniques. We have cloud uh, computing and different services there that we can use and Kubernetes and uh, you know, CI, CDs and whatnot. And if we were to you know, speak to some other company that were, you know, ah, I heard all these terms, I don't know what they mean, but I really want to have a good tech stack to, to make sure that we can really operationalize AI properly. Um, then is there something, you know, you, I think you said a lot, number of things you'd like them to do. Yep. But can you try to find things that you think this is really a bad thing to do? Bad and things are easy to find. Yeah. Yeah. And okay, well, I'm very eager to say something. <laughs> if you were to say some things that you've seen in the past, perhaps from other companies or something that oh, I wish they simply used, you know, Kubernetes instead, or I wish they used that and that and that. Mm. Some bad examples that you've seen in the past. What would that be? That's if you th- in terms of tech stack, it's like if it's if it's stupid but it works, then it's not stupid. So mm-hmm. whatever, right? So if you use Chrome jobs on a uh, in a Kubernetes cluster f- for training models every day, mm-hmm. sure. Like you won't have any governance over what came out from where. You won't probably have any artifact history, and you won't f- find out stuff when it breaks. But yeah, it's, if it's working, yeah, mm-hmm. it's a it's a since the whole software. The engineering thing for machine learning is uh, still changing a lot. 
let's say a concrete thing. Um, you train your model and put it in production from the note, Jupyter notebook. Is that a good thing? I'm okay with it. Yeah, okay. sure. So okay. paper mill is a gamble that I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm not sure. So explain what paper mill is about. Uh, it's uh, I mean, it's I guess it's a way of uh, doing exactly that. Like mm-hmm. since data scientists use notebooks, then they like it. Let's not make force them to learn new stuff. Let's let them be good at what they are good at. Mm-hmm. Let's meet them. We are operations. Let's take their notebooks and run them in a um, not maybe even potent way, but still in a more operational way where you run them and you get you some schedule outputs. Schedule them and you can have yeah, some kind so of running. No, you, I'm taking your notebook. I'm running it every day. And you don't have to similar port. to Databricks as well and that type of. Yeah, probably I haven't mm-hmm. touched Databricks, but yeah. notebook oriented oriented tools are that's one gamble people mm-hmm. have, right? Uh, SageMaker, like mm-hmm. we assume they 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 like this tool, mm-hmm. but I I I also could imagine data scientists liking a new tool a lot more. Than notebooks because notebooks are hard mm. and, compu- and programmers know this. Data oh, scientists don't. We have fa- we, Mika Klingvall and uh, some other guys. They're mm-hmm. passionate about using Julia. And sure, yeah, but they uh, love so Julia. I mean, coming from computer science, I like Julia in many ways and in many ways not. I have never really used it for anything proper except for playing around. Uh, but what they promise is very nice. But it doesn't fundamentally solve my concerns, which is what can you mutate when and why? Why do you have four I loops? They don't help me read your stuff. And if Julia is proud of having fast and powerful loops, that's a concern I have, I think. So, but still, Julia is nice. We should have these guys in the same room, Mikkel, and battle out. And I'd like to get into like a dependency injection and, and vector orientation. But but perhaps we should. Um, yeah, that's a good. That's a good yeah. Should we leave the tech conversation a little bit now? I think it, it would be fun to to make sure that we have proper time to to actually speak about music as well. Yes, uh, mm-hmm. since you know I also have a passion for that. Uh, even though the, I think the the genre and the, the type of music we like perhaps sometimes is different although we, we like to sing karaoke as well <laughs> uh, has happened yes yeah anyway like um, to forget just to try to set up the, the, the question or scenario a bit it, it would be fun to hear your view of you know ai can be used to help or actually uh, potentially not help um, music in different ways it can mm. be for the consumer you know you can mention recommender systems or whatnot to, to actually make it possible for users to discover music in a way not possible before. Yeah. And you can think about AI for music for artists as well. So thinking about, you know, tools to use to actually produce music and, and these kind of, uh, what was the name of the, the artist actually produced the first AI produced album? Most of them are quite human curated anyway, so it's yeah. not that exciting to me. But they use at least AI in the loop, so to mm, Yeah, uh, which is uh, nice. But, yeah. but that's been the case for a long time as well. If you think about the normal humanized button on an analog synthesizer, mm. That's AI. Mm. But, but, if we, AI but if we speak about artists to begin with, uh, it would be funny. Do you think AI will, in the long run, be of benefit for artists, or will you know computer-generated music you know, continue to diminish the need for mm. artists, or will it actually increase the ability for artists mm-hmm. to produce music? Mm. No, and, and the answer could be both, right? Yeah. For certain types of artists, they might have a harder time, and for certain types of artists, they might have an easier time. And the thing is, it doesn't really matter because this will happen anyway. It's like, what will happen? Mm. We'll see. I'm not that personally worried about having singer-songwriters not being able to be used, uh, being appreciated because there's a Python script that makes really good James Taylor covers. Mm. I don't think that's, that sounds very far off. And let's say we have that uh, Keras model and it's really, really good. Oh, it sounds so good. It sounds exactly like a new U2 song. 
I, th- I still think humans appreciate the human connections. It doesn't, it still doesn't matter. It's like mm. by definition, it's not as interesting if it is sampled from a generative distribution. Like mm. someone who has a passion and you can feel his pain. Or kind of, yeah. yeah. So the story, the story behind, behind artists story is a very big music. part yeah. of appreciation of music. And if that's the case, uh, then we are fine. It's mm. not going to change much. The, exactly in like the same way when people say moving pictures, oh, will books not be relevant? Uh, yeah, they are still relevant. Mm. I think it's going to be a very nice compliment for, uh, I mean, there's two sides, two abstraction levels here. First, that it's really important that AI is uh, accessible to m- everyone, that you can mm-hmm. build stuff yourself. It's yeah. not, I don't like it being a Silicon Valley thing. No, that's, um, the, that's a real problem, actually. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a little concerning when the g- compute is so intensive, but, um, but having it for everyone so we can build cool stuff and having a normal thing. I also want everyone to be a good programmer, but that's mm-hmm. hard, but I mean, it's important. Democratizing AI in the same way you could say like democratizing music production. Mm -hmm. So if I'm not great at, uh, I don't know, reading sheet music, I'm not classically trained. I have today I have software that uh, lets me paint in the notes Mm -hmm. and I can be a really good musician. I make many people happy. I make me happy with doing the songs and I never had to be classically trained. And I don't think this is a bad thing necessarily. But it's interesting because there's people who have creativity and they, and, you know, I met people who can really, they can feel and hear a song in their head. Yeah. But and they let, are not classically trained. Themselves. They cannot express it now, yes. but probably with AI. They so could. if you could enable that people that have these nice ideas uh, could express themselves with new tools, I'm all for that. There's no gatekeeping in that. So the obvious example would be to embed some nice um, autoregressive predictions in, in logic. And then I don't mean... Uh, formal logic, I mean the program logic, the Mac music production software logic, oh, okay. sorry, but the, let's say Ableton Live, mm-hmm. something where you record your songs, you make songs. Mm-hmm. If I have a bass guitar that I just tracked and I want to get a nice drum fill, why do I have to take my mouse and drag and drop MIDI stuff? Mm-hmm. Can I just like, give me a nice drum fill that kind of follows my bass guitar syncopation and it should sound decent. Mm-hmm. And then I pick and choose the suggestions from the model, but that workflow sounds so obvious to me. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't take away anything from my musical creativity or my authenticity because I still chose the whole picture. Mm-hmm. So like I'm designing it with. But, but uh, I think, of course, when it comes to music, to be uh, is uh, Swedish house mafia are they proper musicians yeah, or are they basically DJs? that's the question, right? Uh, so are, are they, they, are they, musicians? Are they musicians? I would say yes, but like if you if you think no, then of course the AI stuff is not musicians either. Uh, but that's the thing, right? Why have so many? Uh, notions about what is true or, or false in something that's just like if it feels good it's good so mm-hmm. go nuts yes and uh, enhancing that expression with uh, deep learning and machine learning models is uh, an obvious next step for for me that's mm-hmm. something we have to do and we will do uh, and what about simply speeding up the workflow yeah mm-hmm. precisely uh, whatever that means and if you say like oh we speed it up for commercial uses then i'm less interested i like art for art's sake but still whatever exploring expression with new tools how how is that problematic? Mm. Uh, actually, I, yeah, there's yeah, take problematic. It, the, yeah, what is the yeah. problem? <laughs> you, you, you thought of it yourself. Yeah, 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 okay. So like in any type of machine learning stuff where that we put into production into enhanced users, we are, we are deeply worried about fairness and bias, right? Yes. So maybe we're going to have everything sounding very homogenous after some 
couple of decades. Mm. Uh, but that's already happening with humans anyway, right? Mm. So like, I'm going to chase the next trend and make a bad copy of the same hits to get on the radio. I mean, but you, you, you could see how, how the music industry or, or a record label could basically go into a factory style approach. They already do. Yeah. They so. are, and they are already doing it. Yeah, so that's why I'm not concerned about AI doing that in a worse way. It's, this is hopefully <laughs> going to be more of a... Uh, they can't be worse than Idol anyway. <laughs> and AI must be better than Idol. <laughs> Uh, business is business, and uh, that has to be solved for any type of AI system. It's going to be a concern for everyone. Mm. What is your thought on uh, garage uh, band? I like it yeah, because that has a you know feels after you're playing. You basically can play it. Okay. Um, so garage band has this uh, logic, right? So you mm. basically you play something on 120 beats, and then you get like a choices between uh, different uh, drum sets. Sounds awesome. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So awesome. even uh, now in kids, there uh, in the, mm. my daughter is in uh, school, so they're teaching them how to produce music. It's beautiful. When yeah. I was like a kid, that was not possible, right? Okay. Garage yeah. band yeah. sounds great. Yeah. You know, like if you play around with that, you, you get pretty far. Yeah, right? Making uh, artistic expression accessible, I have a hard time seeing that as a bad thing. Yeah. No. But there are downsides eventually, but we're going to figure them out, I think, because I'm quite technologically optimistic. Mm. Uh, fairness and, and data set bias and all of these huge problems we have, I, I like to think that we will um, work around them. And what are the problems you see with fairness and data, base, data bias? There are, there's so many examples, right? But it's like if you go on Twitter this week, you have the cropping <laughs> algorithm problem that everyone is upset about yep. and they are rightfully upset and uh, and figuring this out is and what is it cropping I, if you upload a picture of one black man and the one white man in the same photo mm. twitter will tend to crop the f- to the face but they always tend to crop to the white face and that's mm. uh, they have so the team apparently they did test such stuff mm. uh, and it still kind of made it into a big big um, PR disaster this week. Mm. And uh, and again, rightfully so, because it's weird that it does this. It should, you should expect a 50-50, right? It should yeah. be sometimes the black guy, sometimes the white guy, whatever. Um, but it, since so many smart people are thinking so much about these things, I feel quite optimistic about it not being unsolvable. No. I, mean, I really like what you said about, you know, AI can be a way to democratize um, to, to democratize uh, music and and I remember one of the quotes from what was her name Taryn I think and and she produced this uh, album uh, using things like Amper and uh, I think she used uh, yeah, Magenta the, the Google mm-hmm. Cloud library and things like that to have uh, basically um, an album of uh, different songs um, that contain like all the instruments and her vocals but she couldn't really play an instrument. Sure. But uh, and the she computer really counts, maybe? Sorry? Does the computer count as a musical instrument? Well, that's the way she solved it. So mm. she basically said she, she basically had an outlet, a way to produce music that she couldn't otherwise do because she never learned to play instruments, even though she tried. Mm. So it could be seen as a way to democratize yeah. you know, production of music, right? So, yeah. so you, th- what we said, like, you have an expressive idea and you have you have the music in your head you have actually something to give to the world mm. you simply have not acquired the skill of playing an instrument don't want to couldn't whatever don't, many reasons mm. doesn't really yeah. matter yeah it doesn't matter but it, it's ultimately that you have a artistic expression at, sure. you know anyway which yeah. is fantastic which mm. is democratizing in some ways yeah i have a hard time finding downsides to it really um and and one the part of this that i'm most excited about is making it um 
allowing it to make new expressions, new forms yes. of expression, new genres, whatever. Like if I give you a weird LSTM that's mostly randomly, mm. not even trained, whatever. If I give that to Radiohead, they would probably make a pretty cool song, mm. right? And 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 for me, I want it to be also then uh, uh, sound. So it should actually make sense. This should be a trained model. It should not be just a GAN spitting out random weights. That sucks. But if it's a properly good, reliant uh, machine learning model using someone's new expression where they make a new cool song, mm. that's but, but that's amazing. Think about that angle that you get artists now mm. who are now skilled in the in these technologies or uh, CNNs. It could be. And, yeah, and how they now take this as the next level of synthesizer, how yeah. they, like we did sampling in the 70s, right? Pretty much, yeah. So this is EDM and working with your MacBook Pro, that's the norm now. Next step might be that you're working with your GPU. You won't see it, of course, because you're not technical mm. in that way, but working with this predictive model that gives you weird uh, MIDI samples, patterns, predicted samples, Super sampling cool. from Agenda yeah. models. But, but speaking about the downsides, I mean, now try to, you know, really find the downside of this. And imagine a future where, you know, generation of music works really, really well. Mm. And you can, as a user, say, I I like the music I'm hearing, I like the vocals, I like the instrument, but I want to tweak it this way. And yep. you pull some lever and you get it in, in the way you want, but mm. it's all computer generated and there is no real artist behind it or human artist behind it. Um, do you think that is is going to be possible in the future? Um, For some genres, that's already a quite successful business. Mm. But then it's mostly synth pads and quite ambient music. Mm. There's never, it's like singer songwriter stuff isn't even on the radar. Yeah. So but, um, no ambient music can today really be uh, can, you can, synthetically with an system or even with a machine learning predicted stuff, you could make quite nice uh, jo- yoga music. Uh, that kind of works probably good mm. enough for a yoga studio. Okay. Ele- elevator music is pretty much I guess and that's fine uh, it's, uh, those type of more ambient kind of not uh, with hooks and and lyrics mm. um, and let's say we added that you can make nice lyrics and nice hooks and like this is a really good Taylor Swift impression with this model mm. yeah. and I know you worked also with the Altitude kind of software mm. and, and I wish I had access to that when I sing karaoke because Me I, too. I <laughs> certainly would need it at some point but what do you think about artists making use of Altitude you know, techniques. To yeah. To yeah, so so like if you mean think like T-Pain and when it's on purpose, it's mm. an effect or cheer is the original, I guess. Um, I liked it when I was still, and, and it's cringy as a sound effect, but what, who cares? It sounds mm. cool. And then if you do it a little less, so you're cheating then because you're not actually singing on in the key. Why? I don't get why people care so much. No, but I would care. Uh, this, this 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 is a different... You're using now, a microphone to amplify your voice yes, as well. Yes, but now, but but in, but in the grand scheme of things, you know, you have people who are really skilled, right, and who are real. Yeah, but you I know, don't listen to music because they are skilled. I listen to it because I like the end product. If it sounds okay. in a good way, so this is the whole picture that matters, and the details are interesting, uh, but they are not the point. But should we have re- respect but, but for the virtuosity? Yeah, you know, before vir- we guitar virtuals, right? Before we get more into it, let's have uh, yeah, a more techy kind of discussion about autotune, I think. Okay. Uh, since you, you are an expert in this as well, how does an autotune uh, work and uh, what does it exactly do? Mm-hmm. So you're going to enter a little audio signal and you're going to uh, output another audio signal. Hopefully that sounds extremely similar, mm-hmm. except slightly more on pitch, whatever that means. So, so then you might want an extra input, which is what is the melody then? So mm-hmm. we should fit to some med- melody. And when you do this uh, in a naive way with signal processing, you might accidentally change the vowels that you said. Because if you pitch shift the whole thing, all the frequencies, mm-hmm. you're also going to change your uh, your formants, which is uh, a 
hard thing to explain. Is this when you get that out-to-tune, like, uh, sort of cool sound, if you think the that's cool? The chipmunk effect, rather, yeah. which is not cool, <laughs> but uh, it's nice. Uh, but some, sometimes you use out-to-tune. So the, the skipping thing, the T-Pain yeah. effect, uh, the chair... Uh, believe in love effect that's mm. more uh, the, the speed of which you pitch okay. shifts. so if you hook on the immediately when it predicts this pitch and shifts everything that's a nice skip that people kind of like because it's quite musical and how do you build an artist you know um uh, you don't need machine learning to do it mm. right so that's the thing you know which frequency you want that if you did that and you just kind of um, move around stuff in the signal let's say you had a spectrogram i want to translate a little mm. i want the, the the big activation here to be up there mm. You can do that manually. Mm. Uh, if you do it with machine learning, you get state-of-the-art results, but I don't know if it's necessary. Yeah, still get the. But you, you, when you look at um, Antares or the other one, I forget. They have used some form of energy-based minimization thing, mm. uh, but I think. Uh, but traditional signal processing techniques works rather well. Quite for well for monophonic. Like if it's a single vocalist, if you give me a choir of many people and all of them sing a little out of tune and they're mixed together. Mm. Then I'm going to go, hmm, deep learning might be better here. I don't know even how to start. And end-to-end learning, that could be kind of cool. And I think that's an active research topic. Like, how do you tune a choir? Mm. That's where more where deep learning is. Mm. Uh, just like a, I have a question. Yeah? Yeah. So you're often saying this, and, and you seems to ag- seem to agree on this, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you know when... Uh, to apply deep learning or machine learning, mm. or this is basically an AI pro- uh, problem. This is not an AI problem because mm. it's fantastic, but I don't get it how you know, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I try to distill that into like, I have, we have a tech onboarding on in those slides. When you start as a software developer at Epidemic Sound, you get onboarding from different people. One of them is from the machine learning people. And in those, we have a couple of slides about how do we know that, like what's, what type of projects are suitable for AI techniques and what are which ones are not? This is a key topic for the general Yes, and appli- I think application. So what's annoying is that to learn that rule, you have to kind of go by some examples. That's almost easiest. Uh, because if I gave you the my, my rule of thumb that I'm using, I don't think it would make sense without examples. Try. But it's going to be, um, I mean, if you're thinking, um, yeah, we said self-supervision, right? So for me, it's going to be, you have to be able to do early stopping. It has to be discriminative. Otherwise, you can't sleep. And then it's going to be self-supervised as uh, annotations, uh, which makes no sense. But fundamentally, you want for each individual input to my program, I have to know a corresponding output for that particular input that I want to have. And if I can't say what I want to have, then we don't have much to do with machine learning, really. We could do clustering. We can do those things. Um, but we can't really do deep learning that in the first, in the sense that people talk talk about it. So you have to have a bunch of, so let's say 10,000 inputs and you have to know which output each of these should have. And if you give me that list, an uh, Excel sheet, then I can do it with machine learning. So h- how does your AI canvas look like that you take into the business guys when you start sitting down and trying to so, translate the business problem into qualifying if this is a machine learning problem? So that's a two way street. Now, for me, it's going to be, I can't explain this in a good way. And people won't be able to go around and look at different types of data pipelines and determine, oh, this is ripe for for TensorFlow and this is not. They, so they, how do you do it? Exactly. Practically. How do I do it? I think they have to, everyone, all of these business people, they have to kind of go through, let's say, elements of AI. They have to do something, something they have to get the kind of their own grasp of what type of data do, do these people what is about. elements of AI. Right? So that's an online course uh, that's kind of for business-oriented people about mm. 
what is machine learning really? What you learn the basics of AI. Basically. Yeah, I, I think it's recently, it. and one of the question was basically how to determine if this is a machine learning or deep yeah. learning project, and that is based problem. And that's why I wanted to ask you because mm. I think this is very important. And many companies mm. are like, yeah, let's do AI and machine learning and deep learning, but actually maybe the project or problem is not something. Yeah, I mean, if I give you the, if you give you my rules, <laughs> you won't be able to apply them because they have so many weird weird math terms. So it doesn't help. So you, you need to but see examples. Take example, take the the the, the vocoding, right? Or what was it? That the, melo- the the melody that you're using. The Why doesn't autotune need uh, machine yeah, learning? Yeah, autotune, no. etc. Okay, is that a, a machine but learning problem? Uh, it, so these days it is, and it's been for a while. Why? But if you want the highest quality, but if you want a good enough model, you don't need machine learning. And that's also a thing that machine learning practitioners and business people forget: uh, choosing a strong baseline. What's the uh, current best approach? Oh, prob- probably deep learning. What's the uh, what's a good baseline that costs that you can run on a Raspberry Pi for a tenth of the cost? Yeah, costs nothing to do. It's quite cheap. You can pip install it. What's that baseline? And we tend to forget that one. And uh, so having that w- first, and that's where for tuning we go. Like mm, you can get quite far without machine learning. And then if my business stakeholder says, but it has to be even better, that's where we go. Mm, okay, so maybe we need data-driven approaches. But this this tells you a lot about getting started with AI. Starts with I mean, like this whole journey of, of adopting AI, it really starts in the beginning where, where how, do I, how do I have people who can translate business mm. questions into data and analytics questions and understanding the right fit of what we are, you know, what try to I analytics we need. This needs to be a core competence. Yeah, and, but, but the core thing has to be that everyone, not the technical AI people or the data scientists. They need to be savvy enough. Everyone has to be kind of in yeah, a little like they have to have data literacy. That's very good. That's very helpful. It's easier to, to talk to them. But primarily we have to, why do we need a baseline? What's a baseline? This is just experiment design. How do I know that this system is worthwhile building when I measure stuff? Why do I measure stuff? What conclusions do I draw from my measurements? Mm. That kind of, um, essential scientific uh, practicing stuff mm. that is even more important for business people so they can uh, go with the counter question of like okay so you made this cool keras model what's your baseline i would love to hear that from a cfo that would be cool when the when your ceo how do you measure what's your metrics what's your baseline uh, yeah what are you mis- measuring yeah when that becomes like uh, the normal type of terminology and, and type of when communication when that becomes a ceo you know, dumb, very, what's your baseline for this algorithm for the future to have for yeah. sure and uh, then it's also easy to get too hung up on, on baselines because every model is wrong. And that includes metrics. Mm. Metrics are proxies, but they are very important to know about. Yeah. Would, would you say, you know, thinking about, you know, when to use machine learning or deep learning or, or not, um, I guess, you know, one basic rule to have, if you agree, is like Occam's razor. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> not sure. Let's, let's go here. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, so Occam Schrader basically says, you know, if you have like a number of choices to make, yep. please t- choose the the simplest solution possible um, uh, that is uh, satisfyingly, you know, um, performing well. If you are performing exactly the same, pick the simpler. Uh, not exactly the same, uh, yeah. I would say, but uh, because then we're in the real world. Okay, but let's let's reframe it. Um, there is an extra like inherent value in simple solutions. Yeah, no. I think when we, really the, the, so yes. If you knew that this is simpler, yes. Yeah. But there's uncertainty in your estimate of it of these me- models. You mm. can say this one is simpler than this model. Mm. Okay, how do you know that? 
Okay, but let's, uh, if we take some concrete examples then and, and speak about simplicity in those. So we can say that, okay, let's do AutoTuner. We can build it using pro manual programming mm -hmm. and building up the rules and you use the spectrograms mm -hmm. and you can manually program without using any data at all, mm -hmm. saying this is how you build an AutoTuner. Great right? example. It's a simple thing to do and you just manually have to program the rules. You could do it data-driven as well, I guess. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so that's the next step then. So if it becomes to, you know, Uh, underperforming or not really good, uh, working that well, perhaps you need to use data instead to learn, you know, how to really make it, you know, predict the right things. Mm, might make it simpler, I would say. Well, it's still, it would add the requirement of data to it. Uh, that's one requirement, but it will also maybe remove the requirement of domain expertise. Of the human. So then you're going to yes. go like, which, which one is simpler? The one that mm. doesn't need smart people or the one that needs data? Mm. And I guess that depends on your, pra your practical particular case if you have data mm. maybe it's easier to just do deep learning and if you have domain experts you can also make use of them sometimes but yeah if you so don't, the hybrid approaches will probably always be the way forward if you really want to cream out the last couple mm. of decimals on your accuracy if you want to make the best model mm. then i think you need both but if you have what's simpler yeah i mean, I, i like actually that kind of thinking you know simple can be different things it, it really well, depends on the context if i'm living after a notebook with numpy code That mm. I, where I wrote a lot, lot of like Fourier transform kind of smoothing things mm. to predict the pitch and shift around stuff, mm. and I give it to someone, mm. I would be more comfortable giving a Keras notebook because mm. I think more people will learn and know that stuff than the single processing stuff. Mm. So it kind of it really depends, mm. uh, which is a cop out answer, but yes, yeah. it is. But still, <laughs> it, it, if we you know ignore the definition of simplicity for once and just think about the general. Uh, concept of the the more simpler solution you can build, mm. the better one it would be. Why? If it works the same, why do I care? Because it's easier to maintain. Is it, is it? build? Oh, okay, so if something is easier is to maintain, then I would prefer that, yes. Mm. Uh, if they work the same for the end user. So the definition of simple is not straightforward always. No, probably not, right? And that's why, uh, that's why I think when people use Occam's Razor for machine learning stuff still, uh, it might turn out that deep learning theory is too new And we're gonna, f in 10 years, people might say like, oh, this one is so simple. Mm. It's first order derivatives, you minimize something. And it's, uh, the, this is the simple one. Mm. And the whole other side of it, where you have feature engineering and you pick features and then you do SVMs and all of that. That like could that. feel very, that could feel in a couple of years, could feel very complicated. Why do I need to know about um, edge detectors? Mm. And I, you know, that's a really good comment, I think. And um, you know, thinking about the horrible kind of feature engineering work that I did, you know, my early years uh, uh, before, you know, deep learning really became popular. It's a waste of time almost. It's it, nice. It's, it's, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of manual programming. And you really, if you can avoid it, it can really make things easier and actually more efficient as well, or more, pro, you know, performant as well. So let's so. talk a little bit about feature engineering and the <laughs> the password of 2020 the Data Innovation Summit feature stores. What feature store is a different thing, right? That's yeah. caching outputs for different downstream training jobs. Yes. And that's, that's good. If you call it feature store or data lake. Uh, so what is, what, is, what is it in layman's term? Uh, feature store. Mm -hmm. uh, th th I guess you should ask uh, Dowling about that. Because <laughs> it's, it's not a term for everyone. But to me, it's been like, if I'm going to train a genre classifier in one part of Epidemic Sound, mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a little Python script. Then I'm also going to train a mood classifier in another part of our code base, and it's mm -hmm. quite big. Do both of them have to go back to the raw audio to do all of that stuff? Okay. Or could I just use a versioned uh, uh, data set of the spectrograms? Yeah. And where do I find that data set? Where do we put it? 
in a feature store, I guess. And that's probably very useful in terms of scaling um, if you have many people and, and many different tasks. But what I'm currently doing is just have a joint task training thing with the same, both ex- objectives in the same loss and whatever, and like, then I don't have to think about it. But, but I, I, think, I think this is uh, quite uh, big and also yeah, a huge mis- misconception here. Like, so when, when you start doing not only the vertical scaling, but the horizontal, horizontal scaling, yeah, that's hor- horizontal yes, scaling yes. Uh, I think this is also the main concept- uh, misconception about a data lake. And then we build a data catalog or whatever we talk about. And, and people seem to think it's, oh, we need to catalog our raw data. No, no, and no, now, no. now we talk about, you have assets in so many different no, no, dimensions. No. Yeah. And this is to me... Um, I think it and hits home. data goes into the yeah. feature store. Yeah. So, and, and, and we've been talking about uh, data, data flow assets, mm. uh, analytical assets, uh, BI, you know, visualization All assets. All of them could use feature stores yeah. in terms of enriched data sets. Yeah. And that could be a nice denormalized table where you don't have to join a bunch of re- weird stuff. That's a but, but feature store. Because for we, we're getting to a whole, uh, one, of, one of my passions is really has, has to be to talk about these topics, uh, data and ana- analytics uh, algorithms as an asset, yeah. right? And you get into the whole idea of, you know, what is uh, data management or data stewardship and where I think, that kind of whole idea got hijacked by, you know, GDPR and, you know, the, 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 the governance from a policy point of view, where it's actually- GDPR a, is a good thing usually. Yeah, yeah. But what I'm <laughs> saying is that when, when you get into a huge company now, yeah. when we talk about we need data stewards, so we need someone to take care of this, it's sort of the, 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 the data protection officer sort of hijacked the whole data management, data governance mm. topic, where I think ultimately how we, how we classify, how we, how we have our metadata, how we have our libraries, how we have our feature stores. There's, there's a lot of work going into here to find it. To it's search very it. similar to software engineering. Yeah, of course. Like, should we build a library for this? Should we not? Mm. We have three repos using it. Is that too many or is that too few? Kind of similar things. It's, it's absolutely similar things. Do I want to commit to having these spectrograms out and version controlled for my colleagues? Do I want to have that? Mm-hmm. Then that comes with a m- maybe maintenance cost. Yes. And is that worth it? And could we make it less expensive with a nice framework? And we call this feature store. Then I like it. That's going to ma- change my uh, conclusion. But it's the classical, you know, quick and dirty to get value out now. Yeah. does compared to so scaling, the world right? is quick and dirty for me anyway. It's going to be, let's go to the raw data, just rerun the thing, because that costs 1,000 crowns, whatever. Thinking about it costs 10,000 crowns. So whatever, let's just go. But, but then, and then you have the, the feature stores that you have in your head or in yes. your own uh, they, library. They on Slack. Yeah, boom. <laughs> and then you have in the team, in the yeah. tribe, and then to take this enterprise, right? Yeah. So maybe the, the, the goal is not to to know how to do it, it's do the appropriate thing for your current scale. Mm. So once Epidemic Sound has more machine learning models out in production, and we notice that they all share the data pipelines, then we will be more interested in saying, hmm, feature store might actually be worth it. Should we have an infrastructure, a machine learning infrastructure team? Because I know Spotify, just they have that. They are Mm -hmm. on the scale where they have a, not machine learning people doing products, they have a machine learning infrastructure team. And that's a very normal thing, I guess, when you got to a, that but, but, size. But it's that's the whole point, right? That yeah. data and AI ready is a constant journey yes. in relation to where are you right now in your maturity. And, yes. how, and, and the first maturity will always be, in my opinion, you get to vertical production. Probably. From, yeah. from, from, from you know. Yeah, to show some early value. Anyway. You know, and, you know, you know, insight does value, but now I put it in production. 
okay, do I have a problem when I have two pipelines? Probably not. Yeah. Do I have a problem when I have 10 pipelines? Oh, not really. 100? Yeah, yeah it's going to yeah, scale. Yeah. And, that, and then maybe people are worried that it's too late, but I'm still going to think like it's premature oh. optimization. Um, that's really hard. Ask me again in like two years and I'm going to have a different story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you will know by... Yeah, uh, once we have more products out that I are all driven I, by different I APIs. I told you so, I wished I had. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> my, my, but, in, uh, but while I'm maturing my thinking, the frameworks are also maturing. Yes. And, and I like, let's say once a month anyway, I sit at home, drink a little wine and get tipsy and like look at Kubeflow. What's the state of Kubeflow? Uh, not great yet. Okay, never mind. Let's look at MLflow. Yeah, there's so many different projects that promise to have handle or help me with the machine learning model lifecycle, mm-hmm. retraining it, uh, A-B testing new ones. I have a new candidate best model. Should it go out? Uh, let's try it on a subset of users. But, 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 uh, how, far, but how far are you guys into the product category of data intelligence? I mean, like you have, you have technologies like Colibra, who basically are, are now investing quite a lot in AI mm-hmm. to basically apply AI techniques to basically, ex, you know, identify these libraries, identify the similarities. So I basically, sounds all, hard. We're like all the stuff is the problem with all this. With it's like someone needs to annotate, someone needs to do the metadata, someone needs to do the description of the library, and and to to keep the library as you say is costly or it creates headache, right? So why won't you have we have AI who helps us even identify similar? And code, type of code, code patterns. The more higher order you go, the more uh, cursor dimensionality you get, and the more less. I mean, yeah, it's eventually, true. yes, definitely, it's gonna be a thing. But it's not eventually. eventually. I mean, working twenty twenty with stuff, it's gonna be quite end to end. You go into the raw data lake almost, and you're mm. like, oh, let's run data flow, make it into nice TF records. Let's train on that. Mm. Let's schedule this in uh, Kubernetes. Is good enough? Whatever. Mm. Oh, do we need a pipeline? Yeah, maybe twenty twenty one. I mean, we're going to grow with that. Mm. And the nice thing about not doing it too early mm. is that all of the frameworks that you're offered, yes. they're also maturing. Yes. So I don't want to commit to Kubeflow pipelines just yet. And if I do it later, I think I'm, I'm going to have a nicer time. It's a little bit like, uh, do I commit to Beto VHS? Kind of, yes, yes, yes. You don't <laughs> want to be the first adopter of a DVD player because they cost a lot. And now, it's, and when you look back at it, it's like 480p. That's oh. garbage. Yeah. Um, mm, hard to say. So you're saying this this whole field is really evolving super fast right now. Yeah, yeah. This is yes, 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 yes. Mm. As a as a as an engineering discipline. Mm. Cool. I, I think that the time is really f- really flying by here, and and I'd like to get in some more topics as well. Um, we've spoken a lot about like trying to operationalize AI and all the problems you have with you know moving from a prototype into some kind of operationalized Can we do it like version. This, uh, just to, to yeah. name this, uh, I think that. We we are about on a one fifty, mm. so we're talking mm. about almost two hours. So the next like twenty thirty minutes, we speak ten minutes on a specific topic. Right. <laughs> you, but why don't you moderate us a little I, bit? I, I don't you, moderate you, it. You moderate it. But, <laughs> but you know, you <laughs> you become the clock. Then I become the clock. The timeout <laughs> and etc. Right. I like so, it. So we have let's a topic this. and we run. Okay. Okay. Good. Okay, so so let's try to move into a new topic then. And and uh, you spoke a bit about intelligence, you know, what that really is. And you spoke also yeah. about 10 years, you know, uh, well, you may be able to generate music in a way that is actually very, you know, well-sounding. Mm-hmm. What's your view on, for one, you know, h- how would you define intelligence? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> uh, that's a fun one. And, you know, moving that then to 10 years down the line, so to speak. Yeah, so I have no idea. 
Really? I really don't know. Like, it's a word. I don't know how I define that word. How would, uh, really, how would you define <laughs> <it>? <laughs> No, but I can speak about, you know, other people defining it. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the Mr. Keras. Uh, yes, yeah, he's like, that's a good one, yeah. Yeah. So, oh, in short, you know, he basically says that intelligence is um, skill acquiring efficiency measure. Mm-hmm. So, the ability to quickly acquire a new skill. If that is playing a piano or singing mm-hmm. a song or driving a car or whatever, doesn't matter. It, it's not about the knowledge of how to do things. It's about the ability to efficiently acquire a skill, the knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I like that. That's that's being smart, right? Mm-hmm. To being quickly adaptable. That's yeah. nice. And, but uh, that also maybe diminishes the value of knowledge. So mm-hmm. Because if you have a 60-year-old professor in a room and they are very knowledgeable, they would also probably be perceived as intelligent quite a lot. So yeah, but should we use the term? I mean, it's, it's distinguishing the value. two. Right, well, they yeah. both are valuable, but exactly. I guess the whole idea is to distinguish this intelligence and there is knowledge. All right, so both if, you, are if great. you want to contrast intelligence yes. to knowledge, yeah. then I will agree. Like, how quickly do you pick up patterns? Mm. IQ test, right? Mm. Yeah, that's perhaps not yeah, the best IQ example. But no, 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 no. <laughs> but that's it's based on the premise of it doesn't revolve around knowledge, and then mm. in practice it does because yeah. you can track yeah. practice yeah. it. But yeah. And then of so course, let's let's throw in abstract. The, so let's throw in the word. Uh, EQ, right? In, in mm. Intelligence. Sure, sure, it, uh, sure. How are you emotionally intelligent? Uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Mm. Uh, it's hard. And intelligence, mm. why do, if I work with React, uh, mm. React Native, and I'm an app developer, and I do Android and iPhone apps, and I've done that for a couple of years, I wonder what they have as a side topic uh, that they talk about all the time. Because when you work with machine learning, you have it's this. always like, mm, but what is intelligence? How does the brain work? I wonder if web developers have the same thing about something else. So yes. Like, how does flowers smell? No, what is UX? What, no, what, what is, is UX? What, what is, is a, experience? What is experience? <laughs> and if they have those kind of high-level thoughts. And I love it. What I, is experience? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't want to... That's the same philosophical idea in, in this world. I kind of. It's very philosophical. What is experience? And I love philosophy. What is a good experience? <laughs> <laughs> no, but philosophy. Philosophy is fantastic. I love it. I love uh, especially the scientific philosophy of like what is science, what's a pseudoscience, mm. all of those things. Extremely exciting. I was almost going like, I'm going to study this for three years because I just want to go all into it. But it's so a what different is thinking hat. Yeah, th- yeah. What is science? That's an open question, I think. Mm. But it's a, but having this thinking hat, in this context, I'm an engineer. Here I'm building mm. stuff. That means I abstract away certain uncertainties, such as, uh, yeah, what is intelligence? Hmm. I'm putting that on the Jira backlog. Mm. Yeah, and, and and the interesting thing is now in in our in our interview in our conversation with Mikael Klingvall, I'm not an engineer. I'm a scientist, mm-hmm. and we talked about general science, applied science, and yeah. all that. And and I think you, you're similar. You 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 applied science. No, no, no but the, yeah. So the point is that you, you are proud in two different roles. Yeah, yeah both and they are, are very both valuable. very valuable. Yes, and, and it's I nice think that's to have the long-term key, thinking. So it was also a key point that Mikkel made that you know you know I'm sometimes it feels like I'm, I'm making myself out of a job because they they thought they got they wanted an engineer. Mm. I'm a scientist, and I, this is what I'm good at. Mm. The I most admirable people I see is those that are both. Yes. Mm. And that's very cool. It's very, yes. very cool. rare, but mm. someone who's really, really good at measuring stuff and doesn't diminish it as like beneath them, mm. but they're still very forward thinking mm. and can actually commit to making the full thing. So it's very, not to be rude, but I'm sick of hearing theoretical people saying theoretical stuff and never committing to actually seeing if it works. Yes. Yeah. 
Cool. So it's, it's, it's so cool. like when you look at some people, it's like, whoa, whoa, they actually fulfilled and they thought something, they tried it, whoa. And uh, like, I don't know, personal favorite, whatever. I like Jeffrey Hinton a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, Who is maybe, he? Uh, he's a deep learning, um, early deep learning person. One of the three pioneers or deep so learning. So who are the three people. pioneers? Yeah so, yeah, so those are, I guess they are Joshua Benjo and Jan LeCun and Jeffrey Hinton. But that's sometimes people get upset when you say that. Because it's also like US versus uh, oh. Russia, maybe. It depends. It's Canada, it's okay. Uh, they, they are in Canada, yeah, but it's no, it's uh, Western versus yeah, sure. Eastern. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but still, uh, Jeffrey Hinton is very admirable in terms of like committing to his idea and going like, I think this should work. Mm. And he tried it a lot. Until, until it worked. hard. Yeah. Yeah. And many ideas didn't, and that's fine. And just like someone who's forward thinking and also engineering enough to make it show, show result. Mm. That's cool. the goal. I don't really care about thinking forward because that's easy. Mm. Ideas are kind of cheap. Good ideas are cheap. Okay, so some can I have a next one now? <laughs> I want to have a, I, I want to have a topic now. Okay. Oh yeah, we did have we didn't uh, have a topic. Yet. Okay, boom, new topic. Intelligence was trying. I, I never answered the question. Two, by the way. two minutes. Let's yeah, go faster. Yeah. Let's go faster. Boom. Okay. okay. What's the news? Uh, were the stuff of uh, you or Epidemic Sound? Mm. Um, mm. Yeah, that's gonna be cut. I cannot. <laughs> but basically, we're gonna do more personalized recommendations. But that's, uh, that that mm. sounds so boring. But it's gonna be cooler than it sounds. But it's like we, music people; they don't care about programming. They give, couldn't care less. How, how do you build a, How do you build a recommender system? Uh, collaborative fitting. <laughs> and what type of techniques are you? Planning uh, so we have uh, we have uh, so context based collaborative filtering models out mm. already, and they are they're so content used. based. Are using or looking at what type of data? Content would be then listening to the audio for yeah. me, but it could also be looking at the metadata of the items. Uh, but for me, it would be actually going very end to end. Yeah, and that's something I'm that we're actively working on out mm. of this year. I think we're going to have a nice little deployment of some form of music similarity search mm. where hopefully it works as it should. The hard part about those machine learning problems and projects is how do you know if it works? Mm. You don't have an accuracy. You have a listening test and they are not particularly fast. You can't run them in Python. You recently changed your logo. Yeah. yeah, yeah, wh- yeah. Why did you do that? Mm, you do you know that? Uh, yeah, yeah. I know. What's, what's the storyline internally in the company? I mean, I know the story of it. I think it's uh, not my field, so I, I don't have many opinions about it. Like, I would be, uh, I would be concerned if the head of brand comes in and says, "This is AI," and yeah. he would probably think I'm a weirdo for saying what well, this is a brand. I don't yeah. even know what a brand means. Yeah. But the idea was that naturally over time, the previous brand wasn't really an identity. It was more like a spread out, organically grown, different identities kind of aligned, not really on purpose aligned. Mm-hmm. And the rebrand then would be an uh, attempt of making it unified and having mm-hmm. a one identity. Very cool. But this is uh, this is kind of corporate speech. So, <laughs> I mean, for me, it felt like, Ugh, can't you just spend this budget on buying more GPUs? Please? <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna run stuff. Mm. But, uh, but that's arrogant, I know. Mm. Yeah. Um, and it's probably useful. Um, it's shown some early promise. Mm. And also some early detraction, right? Because people don't like a new brand. When Gmail changed their CSS, I got mm. upset. Yeah. But I don't even remember how it looked no. before. Exactly. So change is kind of... And what is, new in, what is new in your life? Or what, what, where are you at right now? RTX 3090. Let's Ooh. go. What's that? It's a graphics card. Let's buy it. Let's, Let's order buy it. it. It's, it's not available in Sweden yet. No, right? not yet. Not yeah. yet. How, do you, how do you get your hands on it? Who knows? Who knows? There's supposedly only one 3080. That's the current meme anyway. Mm. That's the one that Jensen h- held in the presentation. Really? Oh. How many did you have? 
one. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, making deep learning a normal part of programming. Yeah. I think it's going to be a normal paradigm. And I, I would love to see it being like part of compiler infrastructure, but also part of uh, end user in programming, the, the language. Now, speaking about programming and making machine learning a natural part of that, I mean, there are a number of ways to do that. Yeah. Um, you know, Python is the, the, the go-to kind of language right now. Yeah. And, um, and I saw the have, smirk. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it's... it's yeah. I mean, it, it's unquestionable, like the number one yeah, language right now. Yeah. But then you have, you have Julia and you have like Swift for TensorFlow and mm, you have this kind of... more exciting. And you have this kind of differential uh, yeah, programming language as well coming up. Anything that you are especially like hopeful for? In particular, that one. Right? So that I don't. I've never talked to him, or don't even know him. But Mike McInnes, or what it's called, McInnes maybe at mm. the, the Julia project mm. with the Cygote. So having uh, derivatives all the way up in the compiler mm. and in the whole programming language, that sounds extremely powerful to me. Mm. Like that sounds like a. Nor- that's. I, I think when we look back at this period, twenty twenty, mm. in a couple of years, maybe five, maybe ten, they're gonna go like, whoa. Mm. They have. They didn't have this as a language before. Now, like, how did they do it? Yeah, they had a DSL. It was called TensorFlow. It's super hard to learn. Mm. Like, I think it would be very normal to say, hmm, "Give me the slope of my thing," and my thing here is a symbolic thing using English words. It's called mm. Python two, whatever. So, so is is Python so dominant now? So it's 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 already Python's gonna stick around, mm-hmm. but uh, but uh, but then it's also gonna adapt. Um, but all of those initiatives, I don't even think Swift for TensorFlow people think it's going to be the solution. They just explore the UX. How does how would this work for the next language? So it's mm. going to this, this is first generation. But having f- so it's gradient descent with backprop is surprisingly um, powerful for many stupid things, and it still gives great results. M- way more than people would have thought it would have been. Like, oh, is it a min or max? Oh, whatever, it tends to be a minimum, I guess. And like all of these stupid things. It turns out empirically that it's quite true. It's very powerful to use. Let's uh, promote this to be a first-class citizen in a programming language. Mm-hmm. I-, I want a little nabla or whatever. What? Uh, the gradients, taking the gradients. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but all of these uh, mathy things, that there should be a normal structure. Like you have a list. Yeah, you also have an auto- autograd engine. Mm-hmm. Because that's very normal to use when you have a web server. Mm. How many uh, workers do you need for your current requests? I don't know. Let's do a little optimization here. Mm. Just take the derivative of it. Something, yeah. Just a change of the thing. And like, let me follow that. And maybe that's called signal processing. Maybe it's going to not be called machine learning. But having gradients in languages would be normal, I hope. Mm. Uh, Even though now currently it's quite uncertain how it will feel. Mm. And it's going to require new courses at KTH. Oof, tough, but still, who are we gonna give those? Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, no, no, uh, uh, <laughs> no. Uh, perhaps uh, Carl. Yeah, uh, Carl. No, but differentiable programming is cool. Mm-hmm. Bridging the gap from numerical computing and machine learning, yeah. and sharing tools, very nice. Mm-hmm. Good one. I almost wish we we could speak more about software engineering and we can. Uh, programming. We're gonna do it in another place. Yeah, yeah, we could do it later today, yes, perhaps. Yes, yes. So at the karaoke bar, I, at the I, karaoke <laughs> bar, I assume. And, and I love to, to have the discussion about the dependency injection versus object orientation Ooh. and these kind of things. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't think yeah. we have a time right now to, yeah. to do it. So one more topic, at least. One more topic. Can I choose? Or yes. You? No, no, no. I uh, did mine. Now it's yours. Uh, okay. Uh, which one should? Okay. So so let's take. Uh, you spoke about singularity a bit. About you know what, what will happen in ten years, and we have mm. people like uh, Ray Kurzweil that says basically in twenty twenty nine we will have a singularity, and basically saying that maybe. Uh, 
you know, the, the AI will be uh, better than, than humans in basically any kind of task. Um, what's your thought on that? Do you think, for one, it will happen? Do you think it will be a positive or negative change mm-hmm. in the future? Hmm. I mean, if you ask me tomorrow and the day after and the day after that, I'm going to give you the opposite answer based on my mood because mm. it's a very hard question. I think it's uh, probably a bad thing, actually. Mm. And, and why is that? I don't see... Um, I mean, it depends on what we mean by singularity. If you mean a, a machine learning model that starts to learn its own tasks and starts to design tasks that it needs and it bootstraps some form of like, oh, now I'm doing this all of a sudden mm. and it's out of the control of me. First of all, it, fa- it sounds... It, terribly philosophical. Like, I don't even picture how that could work in practice. There's no mechanical way of it happening that I know of. Um, but if it happened magically, like, oh, well, my Kira script is now a new Kira script. Now there's 10 modules. What? Uh, now it's minimizing, what? This is GPT-4 all of a sudden. <laughs> all right, then. And just kind of spawns off. And my machine is now taking over the, the world and it's a botnet. Yeah. That sounds like a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And if that's what we mean about singularity, like it's outgrowing us faster than we can keep up. But do you think there is like a time point where it unquestionably be, you know, smarter than humans? Uh, in all tasks. Any task. Any task, because there are tasks where they are. Yeah, yeah, of course. But, but okay, all tasks. Better, mm. Okay, I understand what you mean. All mm. tasks. Or like say, a majority of the tasks. Then. What? <laughs> like compared to an average human, they will be able to do things in a better way. Yeah, could be a good thing. If it's your friend or if it's your f- enemy, I guess it depends. It's, that's, it's so philosophical. I heard once uh, some Harris negative. speak about this recently. He's very he's negative, right? I think. Uh, he's concerned, concerned. Yeah. But if we don't do it in the right way, yeah. he basically says, you know, he basically, uh, same as uh, Ray Kurzweil and, and other people, believe in the expo- exponential kind of development. Mm. Like Moore's law, you know, it's exponential. And, and basically intelligence, he says, is also exponential. So yeah. although we have hap- you know, been working with it since 1950s, it's been going really, really slow. But suddenly it starts to accelerate now. Mm. And if we just, you know, extrapolate that curve in an exponential way, it yeah. will basically happen in 2029, according to, to Kurzweil. So uh, yeah. So, but still, maybe I don't know. Let's see. That's that's sure, soon. So we'll see. It's soon. That's something <laughs> we will experience. Years. Yeah, exactly. But but the example that Sam gave, if I remember it correctly, was basically saying: imagine you have a computer that is, you know, exponentially more faster, perhaps mm. not intelligent, just faster. You know, it could it probably is also much more intelligent. But ignore that for now. Just think, you know, downplay it a lot and say it's just one thousand times faster than you. Mm. And then you are sitting and we are having a discussion and I'm AI right now. And you ask a question to me and I'm supposed to give you an answer. Um, for you, you have like perhaps two seconds to think about what the answer should be. But for me, I am a thousand or ten thousand times faster. So I can have a year to think about what my answer should be. Yeah. And if that were the case, I have a year to answer, you know, think about what I should answer to every question you ask me. I can give some really good answers. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, so, so meta learning is cool. And meta, meta, meta learning is cooler. Mm. But what empirical uh, results do we have that leads us to think about this at all? Well, if you just follow the exponential trend we've seen so far, it seems to be exponentially growing. Yeah, right? but then I'm sure statisticians have many fun examples of exponential trends that actually then all of a sudden have something else because mm. there's some underlying latent uh, constraints, yeah. something like there's yeah. stuff. Who knows? Like, yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. Mm. I work with pattern recognition, not reasoning. Yeah. So I don't know. Mm. 
But but what do you think that the negative? You said it potentially is going to be negative. Yeah, if the optimization that they that this thing tries to minimize doesn't align with what what I want it to, yeah. I would be a little concerned. Yeah. And how do I know what it's minimizing if they all of a sudden make their own objectives? Mm. So I'm just oh, I hope they like me. I guess <laughs> that's fine. Uh, but it's also I guess for most people it's not vastly different from the current world, right? So, how many people are you aligned with today? Aligned with? I mean, it's usually called the alignment problem. This, mm-hmm. you know, AI and humans. Mm-hmm. So if AI continues to grow, yeah, so if the they want rates, what I want, then we're happy, right? But yes. how many humans are already? Yeah, not so, many, I guess, but more than more or less. You know, it depends mm-hmm. where you are. Mm-hmm. Mm. How many people are aligned with you? Would you say? Yeah, not not lots. But more than <laughs> uh, yeah. How many people of those have then access to nuclear arsenals? Mm. That's maybe more the concern. Uh, these are tough questions for sure. Uh, I need to throw one more question in now. So, how do you feel about the whole discussion around every explainable AI? Or we need to fundamentally important. Yeah. We, we need to understand what what is happening, yes. or and no one understands what's happening in the black box. And I think. A lot of these speeches yeah. are done by people who doesn't really, really know how the neural network works. Yeah, yeah. So the black box is very transparent. It's like it's just that I'm not, I'm not, I don't like the explanation. But like the, here is the explanation. Here are all the activations. Yeah. So that's an explanation. So, so let's put like debunk the myth here a little bit because yeah. I think there is there is some real misconceptions. It's about not a black box because you don't understand its explanation, right? That doesn't make it a black box. That just makes you not smart enough to understand the explanation. Could you could you elaborate on that yeah, further? Because well, this is what we need is tools. Mm. So we need tools where the goal of the tool is to have the explanation feel satisfactory and understandable to me. Mm. And I don't know how I think, so I can't really script myself even. Um, if you look at a neural network and you're running a forward pass and you get out some prediction, mm. what's uh, opaque about it? The mm. numbers are there. You got this number, you got this number, you got this number, you got this number. You even have some uh, prior knowledge about how these numbers were set because you actually probably trained it with gradient descent. So you know a lot of it. You know exactly which training data it had and you know exactly how it minimized the thing because you did that. But, but, uh, but, but, so then go like, oh, this is a black box because I don't understand these numbers. Yeah, but, hmm, not a black box then. Then it's more like you're not happy with the results. You want to condense them even further. And that's valuable and important. Having a... Uh, Easily interpretable explanations, I guess, is the key. Uh, but explanations we have, and then you have tricks for this, like, oh, which ones pointed to this class, which is the steepest gradient here. So, so what's the problem here, really? Because the problem here is, is a little bit like you humans. Need to be, I, I humans are the problem who are not super experts to understand what actually the CNN has done, mm. and 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 in the end now. It goes both but, ways because we want systems that we trust and to trust them, we need to understand them. Yeah. But they are not opaque, the ones we have. It's just that we don't like parsing an explanation that is consisting of 100 different random floats. That's but, not a good explanation. But but this to me is all, all, all the way boils down to a new paradigm in, in how we organize and how we manage. So a Tayloristic type management, mm-hmm. I'm the boss, so I need to know better than my... Uh, my, my people in my staff and, yeah. and, and, and decide line manager towards them. And here we now have a new paradigm, which is a collaborative paradigm with the mm. cross-functional teams. Sure. And I, 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 my responsibility is to manage the bucks or the money or the marketing. And within my team, I now need to trust someone to be the data scientist mm. or the machine learning engineer. 
and I think that's the real paradigm here mm-hmm. that that we are that it's a new type of leadership needed and a new type yeah. of understanding of this. So the problem is you're trying to apply Tayloristic leadership, which is sort of implying that I'm the CEO, so I should know best, and I don't have a fucking clue. Yeah, that's this kind of the core I think, of it. Eric. I think that's the core. I think it's interesting that we put. I mean, we should put very high standards to our programs. We should. Of course. They can have dangerous impacts otherwise. But you can never expect the CEO to be Maybe a we data should too, but we don't dare to because uh, we're all humans. But it's interesting to me that like, okay, so the thing we had before, we had a neural network that had forward passes with activations. And that's, at least it's transparent. You can look at the numbers. These are the numbers that made it make this classification. That's it. It's deterministic. Uh, before that, we had humans doing it. And if you ask them, like, oh, okay, so what, uh, what, I don't know, what synapses did activate exactly. in your mind or how did you think about it? Usually probably you get... How was that better? Yeah, I don't know if that's better. It feels like we put slightly lower standards on humans than we do on programs and we should put uh, high standards on the programs, definitely. We should also maybe put high standards on everything. But since we don't really know how we think, how why how do we expect programmers hip- to figure out? decisioning be better than machine learning? Yeah, uh, it's hard. Tough questions, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I see the time is now over t- two hours. We should try to, to uh, this wrap is up. Maybe a new record, is it? Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's yeah. not. Yeah, it was 2.30. 2.30. Oh, let's three. go for no. the record. No. <laughs> <laughs> you like to break records. <laughs> Give me a beer. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Carl. <laughs> Carl, uh, what's happening next in your life? Uh, music similarity is very important. Very cool. It's going to be a thing. I think you're going to see it on a website and go like, hmm, and nice. How, how, is go- how are you going to measure similarity from a technical point of view? Humans. Ah, come in. I think actually my current best thinking, unfortunately, involves listening tests. That's okay. always the most As expensive. An annotation that actually will train some other. Yeah, no, for making nice test sets, I think. And then we're going to have heuristics. Uh, really? Yeah. And the heuristics, since they are uncertain, I, I still want humans. But similarity based still on the content, right? Or yes, but you, like a good heuristic would be um, if the similar songs have similar metadata, mm. maybe that's good. You could do like average precision on being in the same genres. Oh, yeah. You could do these types of heuristics to rank your models and then you send out your best candidates to humans. And, and what, uh, who what's, knows? And what's the real business application or value? You, For, you, so YouTubers want to find something. They don't like exactly this, but kind of this. Ah, oh, give me something that sounds like this. Right? Mm, That's a very normal, clear. obvious Simple. thing. Yeah. Simple. And like, oh, it's driven by AI. Uh, who cares? I don't want that to be branded. I don't want that to be seen. When machine learning is the coolest, it's when it's just normal. It well, just, it's a natural thing. Yeah, it's a it normal natural, I, I, have, I want to do something and, and it magically got me to what I wanted to have. Yeah. Mm, super cool. I guess the last question is basically, um, who would you like to listen to on this podcast? Uh, you. <laughs> and uh, uh, Bob Sturm. Bob Sturm. Yeah. And then Jeffrey Hinton, of course. <laughs> of Good course, luck. that's next on the list. <laughs> he doesn't travel, I heard. <laughs> but uh, maybe remotely? Mm. No, but there's so many interesting people, super smart, cool, so many at KTH. Mm. And also, if you're going to go to verticals, you should go at Karolinsk and uh, mm. KMH, right? Yeah. If it's Stockholm based. Yeah. Yeah. And um, machine learning is becoming more normal in their work as well. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems to be uh, really catching on in any kind of domain. Now I only went for academic yeah. suggestions, but. That's, yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah. Fantastic, really I, cool. A little bit more geeky today, but I yeah. loved it. I'm against that word, but all right. Sorry, no, I'm gonna take the position here, like in, in our position here, yeah. like. Uh, but my goal is that you are gonna go on to Kaggle and you're gonna win 
competitions. Mm. That's all right. AI should be for everyone. That includes all of us. Yeah. Right? So just build cool models. Cool. Apply intuition. Mm. And I'm actually looking forward to, to the continued discussion after this uh, podcast yeah. as well. That, By the cool. way, there is one huge topic that we will have after the camera is turned off. Okay. <laughs> and that is going to be about how are we going to teach our kids and how are we going to do the education system to have what you said. Everybody yeah. needs to program. Yeah. Mm. It's also about who, who's going to win the karaoke contest. Yeah, that's yeah. more important. That, that's <laughs> maybe, maybe the most important question. Yes. Cool. Thank you very much, Colt. It is a pleasure, as Thank always. You. Thank you so much. Awesome time. I think we you know, managed to cover, I think, the, the majority of the topics, which I didn't think we would be. But everything from, you know, what is really, who, who are called me, who is uh, Always Epidemic that, Sound, how are they, you know, continuing to use AI in Epidemic Sound and the challenges that, that, that do exist, yeah. AI to music, philosophy, and so much more. Yeah. So Super cool. Thank yeah. you. Thanks. Super fun. Yeah. Cool. More talks like this, it's fun. Yeah. Talking about machine learning is great. Awesome. awesome. Cheers, Carl. Skål. Skål.